Thanks for listening to Great Battles in History. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear from you. You can write me, Daryl D., at greatbattleshistory at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at The Great Battles. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Late in the morning of October 19, 1571, a lone war galley appeared off Venice. Its long oars dipping rhythmically in and out of the sea, it passed through the Porto de Lido and entered the lagoon. Venetians crowded the Piazzetta of St. Mark and watched it approach. The crowd was filled with anxiety and dread. All were still in a state of shock over the loss of the fortress city of Famagusta on Cyprus and the gruesome butchery of its captain, the noble Bragadin, at the hands of the cruel Turk. Since then, the Venetians had sent their fleet off to do battle against the Grand Armada of the Ottomans. Surely, this galley was bringing news of victory or defeat. As the galley drew closer, the sharpest-eyed onlookers spotted colorful Ottoman banners trailing in the water at its sides and stern. Then, a victory salute burst forth from the galley's bow guns. Its echoes were drowned out by roars and shrieks of jubilation. Even before the galley's captain, Onfrey Justinian, had delivered his report to Venice's Senate, news of victory was sweeping through the city. Fear and dread were replaced by joy and carnival. Bells rang, bonfires burned, masses sung. From the Rialto Bridge hung captured Turkish turbans, flags, and swords. For three days and nights, Venice reveled. The rulers of the most serene republic forbade mourning for the dead lost in battle and permitted the wearing of carnival masks out of season. The only ones who did not join in the revelry were the Ottoman merchants licensed to trade in the city. They barricaded themselves in their quarter and waited for calm to return. The news of the great Christian victory reached Spain a fortnight later. King Philip II was at Mass. As the first words of the Magnificat soared upwards, a messenger knelt down beside the king and whispered in his ear, Sire, your fleet is victorious. The Turk is beaten. The king gave the unfortunate man a stern look and replied, Pull yourself together. Wait until I have finished here, and then we will see. Only after the mass had ended did King Philip order a tedeum of celebration. Afterward, he would dedicate his newborn heir, the Infante Ferdinand, to God in thanksgiving for the great victory, a gesture immortalized in a great painting by Titian. It was said that Pope Pius V had no need of terrestrial messengers to inform him of the glad tidings. At the very moment when Spanish and Italian marines captured the Ottoman flagship, he opened his window, leaned out as if straining to catch a sound, then turned to his companion and declared, God be with you, this is no time for business, but for giving thanks to God, for at this moment our fleet is victorious. The news brought not rejoicing, but panic to Constantinople, capital of the well-protected domains of the House of Osman. Rumors swept through the city that the Christian fleet was already rowing up the Bosporus and would appear at any moment off the Golden Horn. But the Ottoman rulers rose to meet this moment of crisis. Sultan Selim rushed back from Adirne and joined his grand vizier, Sokolou Mehmet. Together, the two rode through the streets, showing themselves to their subjects, calming and reassuring them that their empire remained the invincible abode of Islam on earth. Their words were instantly followed by deeds. 
Within days, orders are pouring forth from the Imperial Divan to the most distant provinces, mobilizing men and materiel for the construction of a new fleet. Thus did news of the Battle of Lepanto reach the victors and the vanquished. Lepanto was the largest battle on land or sea in Europe in the 16th century. During it, over 130,000 combatants had crewed some 500 oared warships. At the battle's end, at least 35,000 Ottomans and 8,000 Christians had lost their lives. Lepanto was also the climax of a ferocious 50-year struggle waged by the greatest naval powers of the day for domination of the Mediterranean Sea. On one side were Spain, the first global empire in history, and Venice, a fabulously wealthy merchant republic. On the other side was the sublime state of the House of Osman, the Ottomans, a dynamic Muslim polity that ruled a domain stretching from Algeria to Mesopotamia. Last but not least, Lepanto was the swan song of the naval technology that had dominated the Mediterranean Sea for over 2,000 years, the war galley. Today, Lepanto is still viewed by many as one of history's decisive battles. It turned the tide of war between Christian Europe and the Muslim world. The Ottoman fleet was so badly defeated that it never recovered its former prowess and dwindled as a menace to Christendom. Moreover, the aura of Ottoman invincibility was permanently broken and Europeans were imbued with the confidence that they could subdue the menace of the Turk. This view is a myth. Already in 1759, the great French philosophe Voltaire declared that the results of Lepanto hardly justified the battle's fame. Far from dwindling away, the Ottoman fleet recovered its strength with astonishing speed. In 1572, 250 new Ottoman war galleys, a fleet as large as the one lost at Lepanto, issued out of the arsenals of the Golden Horn and set course for the open sea. Then, in 1573, Venice abandoned the war. In the following years, Spain and the Ottomans fought themselves to a standstill. At last, in 1580, the King of Spain and the Ottoman Sultan agreed to a truce. Both demobilized and laid up their great galley fleets. The age of imperial warfare in the Mediterranean came to an end. What followed, though, was not peace. A new struggle came to the fore one fought by privateers and corsairs for faith and profit. For long-time listeners of great battles in history, I owe an apology and an explanation. I had originally planned to put out this episode in January. Unfortunately, pandemic life and work got in the way. For much of the winter and spring, I was running a remote home school for my six-year-old, teaching university courses, and writing my new book. More on that soon, hopefully. All this is to explain why this episode is four months late, for which I profoundly apologize. I will endeavor to stick to my release dates from now on. Spain was a most unlikely candidate to be history's first empire upon which the sun never set. For most of the Middle Ages, Spain had been on the periphery of Europe, not just geographically, but also politically and culturally. During the 8th century, at the height of Islam's great age of expansion, Arab and Berber armies had crossed the Strait of Gibraltar, itself named after the Berber general Tariq ibn Ziyad, and invaded Iberia. They conquered most of the peninsula and founded a powerful, wealthy, and culturally sophisticated realm, Al-Andalus. The Spanish Christian had been confined to a handful of sanctuaries and refuges in the Cantabrian and Pyrenees Mountains of the north. 
Yet from there, in the ninth century, they began the Reconquista. Lasting almost seven centuries, the Reconquista was many things at once. A holy war to drive back the infidel, an endless series of freebooting raids for plunder, and a popular migration. By the beginning of the 15th century, the Iberian Peninsula was divided among five kingdoms. Four were Christian, Portugal, Navarre, Castile, and Aragon. The fifth was Muslim, the last remnant of Al-Andalus, Granada. The event that began Spain's rise to global empire was the marriage in 1469 of Isabella of Castile and Ferdinand of Aragon. The union of these two strong-willed and capable rulers brought together two very different kingdoms. Castile was the child of the Reconquista. It was vigorous, confident, and forcefully stamped by a particularly militant brand of Catholic Christianity. Castile had evolved as a society under arms. As elsewhere in Europe, the nobility was the traditional warrior class. But because of the constant warfare and raiding of the Reconquista, the exercise of arms in Castile was not limited to nobles. In theory, and very often in practice, most groups in Castilian society were expected to perform military service. Aragon had ended its Reconquista in 1238 with the conquest of the Muslim Kingdom of Valencia. Aragon had then looked outward to North Africa and the Mediterranean. During the 13th and 14th centuries, the Aragonese had embarked on a remarkable expansion that at its height reached as far as Athens and the Aegean Island. This Mediterranean empire allowed the crown of Aragon to tap into the fabulously lucrative trade in eastern luxury goods brought to the Middle East via the Silk Road. The port cities of Valencia and above all Barcelona became the most important emporiums in the western Mediterranean. In the 15th century, however, Aragon's Mediterranean empire went into serious decline. Its commercial wealth foundered because of increasing competition from the Italian city-states and the Portuguese. It also lacked the military strength to hang on to its territories east of Italy. By the time of the marriage of Isabella and Ferdinand, the crown of Aragon consisted of Catalonia, Aragon, Valencia, Mallorca, Sardinia, and Sicily. Together, Castile and Aragon formed what was called in the 15th century and after the Spanish monarchy. Wealthier, more populous, and more dynamic, Castile provided the monarchy's military, political, and economic muscle. Aragon offered a more cosmopolitan outlook, historical connections with the Mediterranean world, commercial expertise, and long experience in ruling overseas territory. The next step in Spain's rise occurred in 1492, when Isabella and Ferdinand completed the Reconquista by conquering the Kingdom of Granada. The last remnant of Al-Andalus fell after a grueling ten-year war. For the first time in eight centuries, the entire Iberian Peninsula was under Christian rule. Yet, the Spanish Muslims remained. Christian triumphalism led to growing intolerance. In 1502, the Spanish monarchs ordered their Muslim subjects to convert to Christianity. Most publicly did so. Privately, they remained faithful to Islam, practicing it in secret. Dubbed Moriscos, they suffered frequent persecution from Spanish Christians. Many other Spanish Muslims rejected conversion, forsook their homeland, crossed the Strait of Gibraltar, and went into exile in the lands that Europeans called Barbary, and Muslims the Maghrib. 
the North African coast from present-day Morocco to Libya. There, the exiles formed a distinct community marked by their burning desire for vengeance against the Christians of Spain. As we'll see, both the Moriscos and the North African exiles would pose a long-term threat to the security of the Spanish monarchy. The year 1492 saw another epical event in the rise of Spain. As every American schoolchild knows, a Genoese navigator in the service of Castile named Christopher Columbus crossed the Atlantic in three small ships and made landfall in the islands of the Caribbean. Spain's American empire was at first modest and unpromising. Then, between 1519 and 1537, the conquistadors of Hernán Cortés and Francisco Pizarro overthrew the Aztec and Inca empires and went on to carve out domains far larger than Spain itself. The Viceroyalty of New Spain and Mexico and the Viceroyalty of Peru, stretching from modern-day Ecuador to northern Chile. The early expansion of Spain was driven not just by arms and conquest. Among the most significant gains came from a marriage. Like the rest of their fellow monarchs, Ferdinand and Isabella ruthlessly traded their children to create or strengthen alliances with other European powers. One of these alliances was with Maximilian of Austria. In addition to being Holy Roman Emperor, Maximilian was also the head of the powerful House of Habsburg a German princely dynasty with extensive territories scattered across Western, Central, and Northern Europe. The alliance was sealed in 1497 when Ferdinand and Isabella agreed to a double marriage in which the Infante Juan, their only son and the heir to the Spanish monarchy, married Margaret, daughter of Maximilian. At the same time, Juana, Ferdinand and Isabella's second daughter, married Maximilian's son, the Archduke Philip the Fair. In arranging this marriage alliance with Maximilian, the last thing that Ferdinand and Isabella wanted was to have Spain and its burgeoning empire come under the rule of a German dynasty. But between 1497 and 1500, all their children except for Juana died. Juana would live until 1555. However, she suffered from a debilitating madness. The succession of Isabella and Ferdinand therefore effectively devolved on the son of Juana and Philip the Fair, Charles of Habsburg. Charles proved to be one of the most remarkable and important monarchs of the 16th century. By 1519, he had inherited a complex of states and territories without precedent in European history. From his maternal grandmother, Isabella of Castile, Charles acquired Castile and its new empire in the Americas. From his maternal grandfather, Ferdinand of Aragon, he received the crown of Aragon, including its Mediterranean and Italian possessions. From his paternal grandmother, Mary of Burgundy, Charles got a diverse collection of lands in the Low Countries, today Belgium and the Netherlands. From his paternal grandfather, the Emperor Maximilian, he inherited the Austrian Duchy, the extensive hereditary lands of the House of Habsburg in Central Europe. Lastly, Charles also stood to become Holy Roman Emperor. Seven of the most powerful German princes elected the emperor. After the death of his grandfather Maximilian, Charles lavished these princes with enormous bribes. They duly elected him emperor as Charles V, the title by which he is best known and by which we will call him. Charles's prodigious inheritance appeared to confirm a saying already famous all over Europe. Bella gerant alii tu Felix Austria nube. Let others make war, 
you lucky Austria Mary. This adage notwithstanding, Spain under the Habsburgs, or the House of Austria, as the dynasty was also dubbed, did make war frequently and fearsomely. During the 16th century, Spain became the most formidable and advanced military power in Europe. For much of the reign of Isabella and Ferdinand, the armed forces of Castile and Aragon had remained traditional, even old-fashioned. Granada had been conquered by a feudal host consisting of noble horsemen and peasant militia footmen, reinforced by crusaders from all over Europe. The Aztec and Inca empires had been overthrown by little bands of freebooting adventurers. Yet, after 1495, the military forces of the Spanish monarchy would be swiftly and dramatically transformed. The catalyst for this crucial transformation was the invasion of Italy by the French King Charles VIII. Italy was divided into numerous, mutually warring petty principalities and city-states, which made it seem ripe for conquest. Isabella and Ferdinand decided to intervene against the French to uphold Aragon's historic claims to the Kingdom of Naples. The French invasion of Italy and the intervention of the Spanish monarchy initiated the long conflict called the Italian Wars, which would last on and off until 1559. The Spanish rulers immediately realized that their old-fashioned forces were unsuited to prolonged large-scale warfare in distant Italy. What they needed was a new type of army. According to the eminent military historian of Spain, René Catrefage, a small yet influential group of Renaissance humanists convinced Ferdinand and Isabella to recreate the Roman legions. Between 1495 and 1503, Isabella and Ferdinand promulgated a series of ordinanzas, or military ordinances, creating a new model army which would become the prototype for all modern Western armies. The most important innovation was a corps of foot soldiers. These troops were recruited and paid directly by the Spanish monarchy. In exchange for their pay, they agreed to be regularly inspected, to submit to discipline by royal officers, to train systematically with their weapons, and to drill together in units. Furthermore, service in Italy meant these troops could not return home and reintegrate into civilian life at the end of a campaigning season, as had been done in the past. Instead, they became full-time soldiers, pursuing arms as a profession. The transformation of Spanish soldiers was reflected by an important shift in language. Traditionally, a Spanish footman was called a peón, the same word used for a laborer or a farmhand. After 1495, in the ordenanzas, the new foot soldier was called an infante. It is a testament to the influence of the new Spanish military system that infante, or infantry, became the word in virtually all European languages for foot soldier. Another key innovation was that the Spanish infantry were organized into companies that acquired a permanent existence. The monarchy maintained these units during war and peace. Over time, the companies developed a uniform size and armament. Even more importantly, they came to have a defined chain of command of officers who received their commissions from the Castilian crown. The Spanish infantry also fought in new ways with new weapons. The first troops who went to the wars in Italy were crossbowmen, swordsmen, and pikemen. But the Spanish were early adopters of the first truly effective firearm, the matchlock arquebus. Developed by German gunsmiths during the 15th century, this weapon employed a slow-burning match cord clamped in a lock. 
When a soldier pulled a lever or trigger, the matchlock snapped down and the cord ignited a pan of priming powder that set off the main gunpowder charge in the arquebus barrel. The gunpowder charge then propelled a small lead ball toward a target. The lock apparatus allowed the arquebus to be held and aimed with both hands. Older handguns had required the match to be held and manipulated with one hand. Otherwise, the matchlock arquebus appeared to be distinctly unimpressive compared to other contemporary missile weapons, especially the English longbow and the steppe nomad horsebow. First, the arquebus's accuracy was decidedly dubious. The arquebus was smooth bore. Its barrel lacked rifling of any kind to grip the ball. Moreover, the primitive state of manufacturing in 16th century Europe meant that the ball rarely fitted tightly in the barrel. As a result, when fired, an arquebus shot ricocheted wildly as it traveled down the barrel. When the shot left the muzzle, it curved radically and randomly from its target line. Even an excellent gunner had little hope of hitting an individual target at the effective battlefield range of about 100 meters. In 1560, English arquebusiers fired practice shots at 110 meters at rectangular targets 6 meters wide by 4 meters high. Even then, hits were far from guaranteed. The English military writer Thomas Diggs warned that our common shot, if they discharge not within a hundred paces, they will waste their powder and do little or no hurt at all to their enemies. By contrast, English longbowmen during the Tudor period were legally required to practice shooting from a minimum distance of 200 meters at round targets just 45 centimeters in diameter. An even bigger disadvantage of the arquebus was its slow rate of fire. Although the matchlock represented a technical breakthrough, it did not come close to solving the problem of a painstakingly elaborate and very cumbersome process of loading. This is the process as described by the military historian Bert Hall. The soldier first had to dismount and secure his match, then to blow any sparks from his firing pan, then to prime the pan with special fine gunpowder remembering to shake any excess from the pan and to tap the pan with his finger, then to recharge his piece with regular gunpowder and to reload it with wadding and shot, drawing out his ramrod and tamping the powder and ball with just the right amount of pressure. He was then ready to cock his mechanism, blow his match to life, fix it in the matchlock's jaws, present his piece, and give fire. In Jacob de Gaines' famous exercise of arms, first published in 1607, Loading an arquebus required 42 distinct steps. Many 16th century captains expected arquebusiers to fire no more than 10 shots an hour. In combat conditions, one shot every two or three minutes is probably realistic. By contrast, an archer could lose 9 or 10 arrows a minute. But the arquebus possessed two advantages that more than made up for its drawbacks. First, the penetrating power of the arquebus ball was far superior to the longbow arrow or crossbow bolt. The 15th century saw European armor reach the height of its strength and sophistication. New metallurgical techniques, pioneered particularly by Milanese smiths, led to the creation of suits of armor that were proof against even the strongest longbow or windlass-drawn crossbow. At the 1513 Battle of Flodden, perhaps the last battle in which the longbow played a major role, 
English archers found that Scottish pikemen were so well armored that their arrows did them little harm. The arquebus was not limited by the strength of human muscles. Modern experiments show that the strongest longbowmen could loose their arrows with 130 to 150 joules of energy. A heavy steel-bowed crossbow produced 200 joules, but a well-charged arquebus ball left its muzzle with between 2,700 and 3,000 joules. Such a ball could penetrate the best armor at 200 meters and average armor at 365 meters. An unarmored horse or man would be killed or seriously hurt at 550 meters. Moreover, arquebus balls produced particularly ugly wounds, literally blowing holes in their victims' bodies. Numerous accounts tell of men in good 15th century armor continuing to fight after being struck by numerous arrows and crossbow bolts. By contrast, Pierre Terray, Seigneur de Bayard, the epitome of 15th century French knighthood, was killed in a battle against the Spanish in 1524 by an arquebus ball that struck him in the side, penetrated his armor, and went on to break his spine. The second, and even more important advantage, of the arquebus was that it required little technical ability or physical prowess to use. Just a fortnight of drill was enough to turn even the rawest recruit into a competent arquebusier capable of loading his gun and shooting it with all the accuracy of which the weapon was capable. By contrast, it took many long years of practice to acquire the skills and muscular development to be a competent longbowman or knight. During the medieval period, this requirement of a lifetime of training had meant that the martial classes were small, which in turn limited the size of armies. The introduction and take-up of the arquebus vastly expanded the pool of potential fighting men. Anyone could now be recruited and after a relatively minimal amount of training, kill the most skilled and most well-armored opponent at a safe distance. In the Spanish infantry, arquebusiers quickly replaced crossbowmen and swordsmen, but the inaccuracy and slow rate of fire of their weapons made the arquebusiers highly vulnerable to charges by cavalry or close combat infantry. The Spanish therefore retained the pike, measuring 25-27 palmas de mano, roughly 5 meters in length and tipped by a long steel point, the pike could penetrate the heaviest armor with a determined two-handed thrust. Spanish pikemen were massed shoulder to shoulder in dense blocks. When they leveled their weapons, they presented a bristling wall of wicked spikes. In Spanish companies, pikemen and arquebusiers existed in tactical symbiosis. On the one hand, the pikemen defended the arquebusiers from charging cavalry and infantry. On the other hand, the arquebusiers protected the pikemen from enemy shot and missile troops. During the Italian wars, the Spanish infantry quickly proved their worth in combat. In the war's opening phases, under the brilliant generalship of Gonzalo Fernandez de Córdoba, called El Gran Capitán, or the Great Captain, the Spanish won a series of victories over the French. At the Battle of Cerignola on April 21, 1503, the fire of the Spanish arquebusiers broke the charges first of the French heavy cavalry gendarmes, then of the Swiss mercenary pikemen. Following another great victory at the Garigliano River in November 1503, the Spanish monarchy made good on its claim to the Kingdom of Naples. Afterward, 
southern Italy and Sicily would make significant contributions to Spain's military and naval might. The seat of war then shifted to the north of Italy, where Spain and France fought for the prize of the Great Duchy of Milan. At the Battle of Bicocca on April 27, 1522, the Spanish arquebusiers mowed down the Swiss pikemen, permanently ending the reputation of the Swiss as the finest foot soldiers in Europe. Then, at the Battle of Pavia on February 24, 1525, the Spanish infantry contributed decisively to victory that saw the French king, Francis I, taken prisoner. By 1529, Spain dominated all of Italy. Only the Papal States and Venice remained outside the Spanish orbit. Cerignola, the Garigliano, Bicocca, Pavia, and the other victories of the Italian wars established the Spanish infantry as the finest fighting force in Christendom. In the middle of the 1530s, the Spanish infantry underwent a final crucial reform. To garrison its Italian territories, the Spanish monarchy organized its infantry into large, permanent formations, the famous tercios. The original tercios were those of Lombardy, Naples, and Sicily. They each had 3,000 soldiers divided into a number of companies. Half of the soldiers were armed with pikes and were protected by body armor. The other half had arquebuses or muskets, a heavier firearm with greater penetrating power. The soldiers were volunteers recruited by the company captains who were each assigned a recruiting area in Spain, usually in Castile but occasionally in Aragon. Recruits joined permanent bodies consisting of veterans who could complete their training in military skills, initiate them into the soldier's life, and impart a pride of belonging to a prestigious unit with a glorious record of past victories. As the historian Jan Gleek contends, this mixture of professional experience, tradition, and cohesion between men who had become friends is probably the key to the success of the Tercio, a success that later made the permanent army with its structure of standing regiments and companies the normal type of early modern European armed force. By comparison with the army, the navy of Imperial Spain developed more slowly and more haphazardly. Under Ferdinand and Isabella, the Spanish monarchy improvised its Mediterranean navy by hiring sailing ships and the so-called galleys of Spain, a squadron of up to 12 oared fighting vessels. The sailing ships and galleys were the private property of their captains who placed them at the disposal of the crown in exchange for lucrative payments. The contracts between crown and captains were short-term and the ships returned to the control of their owners as soon as the monarchy no longer needed them. The shortcomings of this system became increasingly apparent as the Spanish faced the powerful galley fleet of Genoa, which was allied with France during the first half of the Italian wars, and as we'll see, the Barbary Corsairs. Spain's naval vulnerability was driven home to Charles V in May 1528 when the galleys of Spain were defeated by the Genoese fleet in the Bay of Salerno. In this action, the Genoese killed and took prisoner numerous high-ranking Spanish grandees. The key moment in the development of Spain as a Mediterranean naval power occurred shortly after the defeat at Salerno, when Charles engineered the switch from French to Spanish service of Andrea Doria. A leading nobleman of the great financial and maritime city-state of Genoa, Doria was also the finest example of a uniquely Italian figure. 
the naval condottiero, or maritime mercenary captain. He owned a private fleet of 15 galleys that he placed at the disposal of whoever could afford to hire him. In the summer of 1528, Doria put himself up for bid, and Charles eagerly snapped him up. Spanish monarchy concluded a contract with Doria for his entire squadron in exchange for huge payments and extensive commercial concession. But the Genoese naval condottiero received much more than just lucrative financial remuneration. Charles also appointed him Captain General of the Sea, or Supreme Commander of all Spain's naval forces in the Mediterranean. Then, with Charles's support and encouragement, Doria and his family led a coup in Genoa that placed the city in the Spanish camp. The Doria family's link to the Spanish monarchy was firmly sealed in 1530 when Andrea Doria brought his galleys into Barcelona to escort Charles V to Italy. The Genoese admiral, aged 64, his hair long and his beard white, had his first personal meeting with the 30-year-old king emperor. When Doria moved to remove his hat, Charles stopped him from doing so and instead doffed his own. Deeply moved by this gesture, Doria declared, Most powerful prince, I shall say little but do much more. I can assure your majesty that I am prepared to carry out loyally all that will serve your interests. Charles replied, I place my trust in you. The alliance between Spain and the Dorias would endure until Lepanto and beyond. After 1528, the Genoese galleys of the Dorias formed the core of Spain's Mediterranean fleet. They were reinforced by three other forces. First, in 1530, the galleys of Spain's squadron was reconstituted so that it consisted of long-term contractors under close royal supervision. Two other squadrons were established along similar lines, the galleys of Sicily and the galleys of Naples. Like the Tercios, these galley squadrons became standing forces with a core of naval officers, technical specialists, and civilian administrators that provided coherence and royal control. Then, during the 1550s, the King of Spain gradually phased out contracting in these three squadrons and assumed direct administration of the galleys. Together, the galley squadrons of Doria, Spain, Naples, and Sicily could put 40 to 50 galleys to sea. They made Spain the leading naval power in the western Mediterranean. Whenever necessary, the Spanish monarchy could reinforce its standing squadrons by hiring many more Italian galleys on short-term contracts. Several great Genoese noble families, like the Centurione, Imperiale, Grimaldi, and Lomellini, followed the Doria's lead and regularly furnished their private galleys to the Spanish fleet. Italy and America were not the only regions where Spain pursued aggressive expansion. After 1492, Spanish forces crossed the Straits of Gibraltar and invaded North Africa. Three motives drove them. First, many Spaniards wished to continue the Reconquista, the struggle against the ancestral Muslim enemy. Second, Spaniards wanted to put an end to Muslim naval raids. The North African coast had long been a base for corsairs who preyed on Spanish Christian shipping and coastal settlements. Many of these corsairs mingled piracy with holy war, identifying themselves as Ghazis or fighters of Islam. Finally, Spaniards sought to eliminate a sanctuary for Spanish Muslim exiles. Filled with a burning hatred for Spanish Christians, these exiles maintained regular contact with their co-religionists in Spain 
encouraging resistance and inciting rebellion. But the Spanish monarchy could not afford major campaigns in North Africa. Its forces and resources were fully committed to the Italian wars. Instead, expansion in this region was driven by Spain's most powerful churchman, Francisco Jiménez de Cisneros, Cardinal Archbishop of Toledo. An austere Catholic zealot, Cisneros was determined to continue the Reconquista deep into the lands of the infidel. During the opening decades of the 16th century, he undertook what amounted to a personal crusade, using the resources of his diocese of Toledo, the second wealthiest of Christendom after Rome, to raise armies and hire ships. Cisneros's crusade fell upon a region broken up into many small emirates and independent cities. The archbishop's first expeditions managed to capture two small towns, Mirzel Kabir and Velez de la Gomera. Then in 1509, Cisneros financed and took personal command of an army of 20,000 troops that was ferried across the Mediterranean by a fleet of hundreds of transports. The army's target was the key city of Oran. Riding a mule and bearing a huge silver cross, the 73-year-old archbishop led his troops, exhorting them to fight or die for the faith. On May 17th, the Spanish stormed Oran, then massacred many of its 12,000 inhabitants. The following year, 1510, the Spanish completed their early conquests in North Africa by capturing Bougie and Tripoli. Furthermore, a Spanish garrison was installed in the Peñon of Algiers, the island that controlled the harbor of that city. The emir of Algiers was forced to pay tribute to the king of Spain. Cisneros's efforts created a cordon of Spanish-held enclaves stretching along the North African shore from present-day Libya to Morocco. These conquests satisfied the crusading urges of the Cardinal Archbishop and other zealous Spaniards. But in all other respects, the conquests were disappointing. The economic benefits of North Africa paled in comparison to the riches of America and Italy the enclaves were completely isolated from the surrounding Muslim countryside, and the Spanish monarchy could never devote the resources necessary to expand deeper inland. North Africa rapidly became the forgotten frontier of the Spanish Empire. Spain's commitment to North Africa would only be transformed by two events. The first was the coming of a new and dangerous breed of Muslim corsair. The second was the eruption into the western Mediterranean of the Ottomans. Even as Spain was becoming the first empire upon which the sun never set, at the opposite end of the Mediterranean, another power was reaching new heights of strength and grandeur, the Ottomans. Before proceeding, I'd just like to clear up some terminology. The Ottomans were, originally, Turks. Europeans in the 16th century, and still today, call their empire a Turkish empire, and its inhabitants, or at least the Muslims among them, Turks. But the Ottoman Empire was multi-ethnic, multilingual, and multi-confessional. The Ottoman sultans themselves were of mixed ethnicity. They and their subjects almost never called themselves Turks. They preferred Osmanli, the descendants of Osman, which is translated into English as Ottoman. Their empire was the realm or state of the House of Osman, Memaliki Osmaniye. These terms point to the Ottoman polity's nature as, in the words of the leading Ottoman historian Colin Imber, 
a dynastic empire in which the only loyalty demanded of all its multifarious inhabitants was allegiance to the Sultan. In this podcast, I will generally use Ottoman and Ottoman Empire. I will only use Turk when capturing how Christian Europeans saw their Ottoman rivals. The origins of the Ottomans can be traced back to the 11th century, with the great migration of Turkic nomads from the Eurasian steppes into the Middle East. In 1055, a loose federation of Oghuz Turk tribes and warbands under the leadership of the Seljuk family conquered Baghdad and established an empire in the heart of the Islamic world. A branch of the Seljuks then moved westward into lands ruled by the Byzantine Empire. After the defeat of the Byzantines at Manzikert in 1071, a second Seljuk state, the Sultanate of Rum, came to dominate much of Anatolia, or present-day Turkey. During the 13th century, the Seljuk Sultanate of Rum fell under the domination of the latest invaders from the Eurasian steppes, the Mongols. With the retreat of Seljuk power, Anatolia fractured into a mosaic of Turkic Muslim emirates. One of these emirates was founded by Osman and was located in northwestern Anatolia on the southern shores of the Sea of Marmara. The descendants of Osman then expanded in all directions. Their principal victim, though, was the dying Byzantine Empire. A long-standing view of the early Ottoman Emirate is that it was the quintessential Muslim frontier state dedicated to fighting the Gaza, the holy war against the infidels. By casting themselves as Islam's vanguard against first Byzantium, then Western Christendom, the Ottomans could draw from a bottomless reservoir of Ghazis, or holy warriors, from across the Islamic world. These Ghazis were the source of the Ottomans' formidable military strength. Recently, Ottoman historians have rejected this view as too simplistic. The Ottoman emirs were devout Muslims. Religion served to legitimate Ottoman authority and to justify Ottoman conquests. But in their statecraft and war-making, the Ottomans were eclectic pragmatists who freely blended Turkic, Mongol, Byzantine, Persian, and Arab practices. Adaptability and opportunism were the hallmarks of their strategy. Although their closest servants and elite troops were Muslims, they readily accepted Christians and Jews into their service. A key event in the rise of the Ottomans occurred in 1352 under Osman's successor Orhan. They crossed the Dardanelles Straits into Europe. How this event came about demonstrates the limitations of viewing the Ottoman Emirate as exclusively a Gaza state dedicated to holy war against the infidel. In 1352, two Byzantine princes came to blows over the imperial throne. Orhan was married to a daughter of one of the contending princes. At his father-in-law's invitation, Orhan brought his army across the straits. They were transported on Genoese ships. The Ottomans established themselves near the Byzantine fortress of Gallipoli. When an earthquake toppled Gallipoli's walls in 1354, the Ottomans seized the fortress and turned it into their European bridgehead. Orhan's son, Murad, became the first Ottoman to call himself Sultan-i-Azam, the most exalted sultan, a title that previously belonged to the Seljuks of Rum. During the second half of the 14th century, the Ottomans expanded rapidly in Europe. By 1397, 
The Ottomans had overrun Macedonia, raided deeply into Greece, swallowed up Bulgaria, established their suzerainty over Serbia, and invaded Wallachia. The seemingly relentless advance of the infidel Turk drove Byzantium, Hungary, and Venice to make common cause. Pope Boniface IX proclaimed a crusade. A truce in the Hundred Years' War permitted English, French, and Burgundian knights to take part. The crusader and Ottoman armies met at Nicopolis. The charge of the western knights, led by the French and Burgundians, routed the Ottoman cavalry, but was then stopped and shot to pieces by the Janissaries, the Ottoman elite infantry archers. The victory at Nicopolis confirmed Ottoman domination of southeastern Europe. The Ottomans were also expanding in Anatolia. One by one, the other Anatolian emirates fell to them. In the same year as Nicopolis, the Ottomans defeated Karaman, their main Turkic rival. The tide of Ottoman conquest was brought to an abrupt halt by the arrival of a fearsome new force in Anatolia. Timur, or Tamerlane, the last of the great Mongol warlords, had already conquered Central Asia, Iran, and Syria. In 1402, he swept into Anatolia and confronted the Ottomans at Ankara. The resulting battle was a shattering defeat for the Ottomans. In its aftermath, Timur parceled out their realm among four Ottoman princes. Ankara could have been one of history's great turning points. Divided and soon embroiled in civil war, the Ottomans might have dwindled into insignificance, becoming just an interesting historical footnote. But history failed to turn. In 1405, Timur died, and a war of succession erupted over his empire. Meanwhile, the Ottoman domains were reunited under a single sultan. By 1430, the Ottomans were able to renew their career of conquest. The Ottomans owed their survival and revival not just to the fortunate death of their great enemy Timur. A far more significant reason was the strength and sophistication of the state they had built. This state was ruled by sultans of exceptional ability who came to power in a manner unique to the Ottomans. Traditionally, following the death of Turkic and Mongol rulers, their domains were divided up among all their sons. The Ottomans rejected this tradition in favor of a system of succession based on two principles. The first principle was that the Ottoman realm was indivisible. The second principle was that the new sultan would be the prince who managed to seize power, then eliminate all his brothers and their sons. The Slav fratricide was already in place by the time of the Battle of Ankara. It was codified by the great sultan Mehmed II in the middle of the 15th century. Mehmed declared, To whichever of my sons the sultanate would pass through God's favor, it is proper that he should kill his brothers for the good order of the world. Ruthless, brutal, and bloody, the law of fratricide might seem to us, but it ensured that the Ottoman state would enjoy a continuity that other Turkic and Mongol empires did not. Equally importantly, the contest for succession helped to ensure that the most talented and determined prince would come to the throne. The Ottoman sultans were served by able administrators and formidable troops. What makes the closest supporters of the sultan particularly strange to our modern eyes is that they were all his personal property, his slaves. We tend to think of slaves as chattel slaves, toiling in fields, mines, or other sites of onerous labor. 
such slavery did exist in the Islamic world, but there was another, less familiar kind. Islamic law permitted a category of licensed slaves who were permitted to act on behalf of their master. From the 8th century onward, Islamic rulers used such slaves to create bureaucracies and armies that were loyal to them alone. In the Hatin episode of this podcast, we have already encountered the Mamluks, the elite Turkic slave soldiers of the Caliphs and the great Muslim warlord Saladin. Although they were property, these slaves nevertheless enjoyed high social status and could wield great political power because of their proximity to the ruler. In the Ottoman state, the slaves of the Sultan were called Kapekulu, slaves or servitors of the port or the imperial gate. At first, the sultans recruited their slaves mainly from prisoners of war or captives taken in warfare or raiding from non-Muslim peoples. But as the Ottoman realm grew in power and geographical extent, this source failed to provide an adequate supply of slaves. The sultans therefore created another source. They began enslaving children from their Christian subjects. This practice was called the devshirme, or collection. Under Islamic law, the devshirme was illegal because Christians living under Muslim rule were supposed to be protected from enslavement. But the Ottoman sultans did not allow mere legal scruples to get in their way. Between the 14th and late 16th centuries, the devshirme was the main source of recruitment into imperial service. The devshirme became highly systematized. The Ottomans ordered a collection every three to seven years, according to need. Officials and officers were dispatched to the Christian provinces of the empire. They were to gather one lad for every 40 households. According to reports in the Ottoman archives, the number of slaves gathered ranged from 1,000 to 3,000. An early 16th century document lays out the exact procedure an official was to follow. Go without delay to these judicial districts to warn the people by proclamation and without emitting a single village to gather all the sons of the infidels and of the notables together with their fathers and have them brought before him and to inspect them personally. If any infidel has several sons, he is to enregister and take and detain a good one for service of the age of 14 or 15 or at the most 17 or 18. But he is not to take the son of a man not having several sons and after taking one, he is to send the others back to their father without any injustice. A document from the early 17th century offers more precise details about the selection criteria. Devshirme officials should not take the sons of important men, priests, or men of good descent. Only sons, because they help their fathers and farm work. Orphans, because they are opportunists and undisciplined. Boys with a squint, because they are perverse and obstinate. Tall lads, because they are stupid. Or short lads, because they are troublemakers. The Devshirme is a highly bureaucratic procedure carefully regulated to protect Christian villagers from abuse. Furthermore, its recruits were likely to go on to live lives of privilege and power in the household of the sultan. Yet we must never forget that the devshirme was for those subjected to it a practice that tore families apart. Although evidence exists that some boys managed to maintain contact with their kin, most became completely severed from their origins. The collected boys were brought from the provinces to the sultan's palace. 
they were first converted to Islam, which was physically marked by circumcision. Then the boys were carefully sorted. The best-looking and most intelligent went to the palace school. There, they received a first-rate education. Once their schooling was finished, these boys joined the imperial household as pages and personal attendants to the sultan. They then served as the officials and clerks staffing the various bureaus of the Ottoman government. The very best of them could eventually hope to become ministers or viziers of the imperial council, the divan. European visitors to the sultan's court were struck by the contrast between the exalted position of the viziers and their humble servile origin. These men had no familial or social connections outside the imperial household. Although they could become enormously wealthy, they owed their fortunes, prestige, and power entirely to the sultan, who could dismiss or even execute them at will. Therefore, particularly under a strong sultan, the slaves of the household had to serve their master loyally and well in order to keep their places and even their lives. The strength of the Ottoman state ultimately depended on the superb army at the disposal of the sultans. The Kapekulu, the slaves of the sultan, formed the army's elite troops. In fact, the Devshirme had been created to find recruits for the sultan's personal guard, the famous Janissaries. The Janissaries, from Turkish Yenicheri, or new troops, were unique in the Islamic world for being infantry. The crack soldiers of Muslim armies had always been cavalry. Most of the slaves gathered by the Devshirme were destined for the Janissaries. They first had to complete a long course of preparation and training. After conversion to Islam, they were hired out to Turkish farmers to work as laborers for seven or eight years. This period of servitude was meant to inure the future Janissaries to hard work and to teach them the Turkish language. When it was over, the boys were now youths. They were enrolled as Janissary novices and assigned to one of the 31 barracks of the novices. They received rigorous military training and lived under strict discipline. The novices also performed duties for the sultan as builders, gardeners, blacksmiths, boatmen, and craftsmen in the imperial dockyards in Gallipoli and Constantinople. These duties were meant to teach skills that would be useful in war. The novices finally became full-fledged Janissaries when they were drafted to fill vacancies in the standing Janissary companies and regiments. The Janissaries were particularly famous as archers. They wielded the Step Nomad Composite Recurve Bow, a compact but powerful weapon made from wood, horn, and sinew. The Ottoman version was especially short, measuring only 102 to 110 centimeters in length. It was capable of formidable range. Historical records indicate that Ottoman master archers could shoot light flight arrows to a distance of 800 meters. Modern tests with replica Ottoman bows and arrows have validated these records. Janissary archers also achieved phenomenal accuracy. They practiced shooting at small targets at ranges of 165 to 250 meters. Finally, their rate of fire was high, up to 12 to 20 arrows a minute, while the archer's strength lasted. In hand-to-hand combat, the Janissaries used swords, axes, and maces. For protection, they wore a coat of light mail. 
The Janissaries were the elite infantry corps of the Sultan's slave army. There was also a mounted component. A certain number of Devshirme recruits were assigned to the Sultan's household cavalry, the six regiments of the Spahis of the port. The Spahis of the port fought as heavy horse archers. They were armed with bows, lances, swords, axes, and maces. They were protected by chainmail armor reinforced with steel plates and carried, until the advent of effective firearms, small round shields. Together, the Janissaries and the Sipahis of the port formed the elite standing household army of the Ottoman sultans. This force was about 12,000 strong in the middle of the 15th century. In wartime, the household army was reinforced by much larger forces of cavalry mobilized from the provinces of the Ottoman Empire. Originally, the Ottomans had relied on local warlords and chieftains to provide them with these horsemen. In order to strengthen their own authority and weaken potential rivals, the sultans took over provincial forces by instituting the Timar system, based on older Seljuk and Byzantine models of land tenure. A timar represented the revenues from a number of villages. The sultan granted a cavalryman a timar. In exchange, the holder of the timar, who came to be called a timariot, had to report for military service whenever summoned by the sultan. The timariot fought as an armored horse archer and provided his own mount and equipment. He frequently had to bring with him a contingent of armed retainers. The Timar was not just an essential institution of the Ottoman army. It was also the basic Ottoman territorial and administrative unit. In peacetime, the Timariot was responsible for maintaining law and order in his villages. But a Timar was never granted permanently to its holder. The Ottoman sultan retained ultimate control over it. At the beginning of a campaign, Ottoman officials checked muster rolls against Timar registers to determine whether a Timariot had reported for duty with the appropriate equipment and the required number of retainers. A Timariot who failed to report or who did not meet his obligations in terms of equipment or retainers could be stripped of his Timar by the Sultan. The Ottoman archives, today preserved in Istanbul, are full of Timar registers. The information from these documents, called Men and Tent Notes, give us an invaluable glimpse into the identities and fortunes of the soldiers of the Sultan. The Albanian Register of 1431-1432 describes a certain Abdullah, formerly page of the slipper to the Sultan, who held a timar worth 5,310 akches, or silver coins. In return, Abdullah was required to present himself on campaign in person with body armor, one man-at-arms, one attendant, and one tent. In former Byzantine territories in Anatolia and in the Christian lands in the Balkans, the Ottomans assigned Timars to thousands of Christian warriors. In Albania in 1431, 17% of the 335 Timariots were Christian. In Serbia, the share of Christians was even higher. 65% of Timariots in the district of Branicevo and 48% in Smederovo. This practice did not just provide the Ottomans with fighting men. It also facilitated the acceptance of Ottoman rule among the conquered. Above all, it demonstrated once again the Ottomans' eclectic pragmatism. As their empire grew, 
the Ottoman sultans grouped Timars in each region into a larger unit called a Sanjak. The Sanjak was headed by a governor, a Sanjak Beyi, who administered the Sanjak in peacetime and led its Timariot cavalry troops in war. In turn, several Sanjaks were organized into a province under a governor-general, or Baylor Beyi, literally a lord of lords. The Sanjak Beyis and Baylor Beyis were not provincials themselves. They were Kapekulu sent out from the capital by the Sultan. Once in their posts, the Sanjak Beyis and Baylor Beyis created their own households of trusted slaves to serve them as officials and elite troops. One important effect of the Timar system was that it became a driver for Ottoman imperialism. The retainers of Timariots, as well as the slaves of Sanjak Beys and Baylor Beys, expected to be rewarded for loyal and effective service with Timars of their own. The Ottomans then had to conquer new territories in order to provide these new Timars. In the 14th century, the Ottoman field army was composed of horse archers, both Timariots and Sipahis of the port, and Janissary infantry archers. The Ottomans then dramatically transformed their armed forces by their precocious and enthusiastic embrace of gunpowder weaponry. They first encountered firearms and cannons in their wars against the Byzantines, Venetians, and Hungarians during the 1380s. A decade later, the Ottomans created units of artillery gunners, bombardiers, and armorers in the household Kapikulu army. We ought to pause for a moment here to reflect on the significance of the Ottoman achievement. Throughout the 15th century in Europe, gunners were not soldiers but master craftsmen who had a special relationship with their cannons. Militarized, professional artillerymen would not appear in European armies until the 16th century. The Ottomans were therefore a century ahead of their enemies. And it was not just with cannon that the Ottomans were early adopters. The Janissaries began to use firearms also in the 1390s. By the 1440s, Janissary gunners were armed with matchlock arquebuses, which the Ottomans called Tufek. This was a full half-century before the Spanish infantry became equipped with arquebuses. There is a widespread and persistent belief that while the Ottomans may have been early adopters of gunpowder, they rapidly lost their lead to their European Christian enemies. Their guns soon became obsolete. Their cannons, for example, remained huge and unwieldy at a time when European powers were casting lighter, more mobile, yet equally powerful pieces. This rapid technological backwardness resulted from the supposed conservatism and anti-scientific bent of Ottoman and more generally Muslim civilization. A few writers and historians have even claimed that the Ottomans were unable to manufacture their own guns. They relied either on captured European weapons or hired Europeans, so-called renegades, to make firearms and cannons for them. Gabor Agostan has conclusively shown that all these ideas are pernicious myths. Already in the 15th century, the Ottomans had developed a complete gunpowder armament infrastructure a military-industrial complex, if you will, including cannon foundries, arquebus and musket workshops, and gunpowder mills. The sultans always welcomed European experts into their service. However, their armament manufactories were staffed in the main by native Ottomans, many of them products of the Devshirme. 
the cannons and small arms produced by these manufactories were equal in every way with European weapons until at least the middle of the 18th century. After 1430, the Ottomans were once again conquering in all directions. In Eastern Europe, they were opposed by the region's greatest power, the Kingdom of Hungary. In 1444, King Ladislas I and the Hungarian hero Janos Hunyadi led a crusade to stem the Ottoman advance. At Varna, the Ottomans crushed the crusading army. As at the 1397 Battle of Nicopolis, the Janissaries' steadfast resistance was decisive to the Ottoman victory. This time, in addition to their arrow storms, the Janissaries met the charges of the Christian heavy cavalry with the massed firepower of their matchlock arquebuses. The event that catapulted the Ottomans from a regional to world power was the capture of Constantinople. The Ottomans had steadily devoured the Byzantine Empire so that only its ancient capital remained by 1453. The great Sultan Mehmed II besieged the city in early spring 1453. Despite valiant and determined resistance, led personally by Constantine XI, the last Byzantine emperor, the outcome of the siege was a foregone conclusion. Although the Byzantines had made desperate entreaties, the European powers failed to send any meaningful assistance. Mehmet battered Constantinople's walls with a powerful artillery train of 60 guns. The Sultan's largest cannon, cast by the Hungarian master Orban, shot stone balls weighing 400 to 600 kilograms. On May 29th, Mehmet's army, led by the Janissaries, stormed into the city. Mehmed immediately relocated the Ottoman capital to Constantinople. After 1458, the Sultan's sprawling residence and seat of government overlooked the Golden Horn, the Bosporus, and the Sea of Marmara. Today, it is the Topkapi Palace. The palace was entered through a monumental gate. The gate's name, the Sublime Port, came to be synonymous with the Ottoman state, much like White House has come to stand in for the government of the United States. Constantinople gave the Ottomans a capital at the meeting point of their European and Asian territories. Furthermore, the city was historically the nexus of major trade routes linking Europe with Russia, the Middle East, and Asia. As a major communications and logistical center, it also served as an unmatched base for the Ottoman armies. Finally, it was the hinge between the Black Sea and the Mediterranean which the Ottomans called the White Sea. The conquest of Constantinople fundamentally reshaped the Ottoman worldview. Mehmed became known as Fatih, conqueror, for achieving the 8th centuries-old Muslim dream of capturing the capital of the Roman Empire. He also assumed the Byzantine titles of Caesar and Basileus. When combined with the old Turkic titles of Kagan and Sultan, these signaled that Mehmed and his successors were now aiming for universal sovereignty and world domination. The Ottomans' widening imperial horizons encompassed the sea. Originally, the Ottomans were a land power. They first took to the sea after crossing into Europe. In 1390, Sultan Bayezid I built a dockyard and naval arsenal at Gallipoli. More importantly, the Ottomans took over an existing naval tradition. The Seljuk Sultanate of Rum had built a powerful navy to challenge the Byzantine Empire. 
after the disintegration of Seljuk power, the coastal emirates of Anatolia continued the naval war against the Byzantines and other Christians. The mariners of these emirates fought as sea gazis, combining piracy and slave-taking with holy war. As the Ottomans conquered Anatolia, they brought the sea gazis into their navy. The link between Muslim corsairs and the Ottoman imperial navy was close from the very beginning. During the first half of the 15th century, the Ottomans appeared to lack ability and confidence in naval warfare. In both skirmishes and fleet actions, they were often badly outclassed by the leading powers of the eastern Mediterranean, the Venetians and the Hospitaller Knights of St. John of Rhodes. The Venetians, for example, trounced the Ottoman fleet in two battles at the mouth of the Dardanelles in 1416 and 1429. Like no other sultan before him, Mehmed the Conqueror regarded the Mediterranean as a fertile field for expansion. According to his chief biographer, the Byzantine Greek Kritovulos, Mehmed regarded sea power as a great thing and domination of the sea as essential to his dynasty's claim to universal sovereignty. To the west of the Ottoman domains, the Aegean Sea was a turbulent maritime frontier of great strategic and economic importance. The countless Aegean islands were ruled by Muslim and Christian statelets. Many were nests of pirates and corsairs, but the sea's major players were the Venetians. From bases on Crete and on many of the islands, and in the Moria and Negroponte in Greece, their galleys made regular forays right up to the coasts of Anatolia. During every sailing season, convoys of Venetian merchant ships plied their courses to and from the ports of the Middle East. For Mehmed, domination of the Aegean would protect Ottoman coasts and shipping from piracy. He also sought to take over the lucrative trade routes crisscrossing the sea and the many ports rich in customs revenue. Finally, and most importantly, the Aegean was an essential stepping stone for the amphibious invasion of Italy that Mehmed was planning. The Ottoman genius for government was now devoted to the strengthening of the navy. Mehmed committed the considerable manpower and resources of his ever-expanding territories to this goal. He constructed a new naval arsenal at Galata across the Golden Horn from Constantinople. This dockyard and the older one at Gallipoli began churning out scores of galleys. Peasants from all over the Ottoman domains were conscripted as rowers. Sipahis of the port, Janissaries, and Timariots were sent to the ships to serve as marines. To command the navy, Mehmed turned to expert mariners such as Grand Vizier Mahmud Pasha, who was described as an intelligent and skillful sea bay. Mehmed unleashed his navy on the Aegean in 1455. He dispatched two fleets that ranged widely over the sea, capturing islands in mainland ports. These fleets were followed up by more naval expeditions every year. In addition, Mehmed led his armies into Greece and in 1460 overthrew the Byzantine despotate of the Moria. The seizure of the Moria gave the Ottomans a superb strategic position between the Adriatic and Aegean seas. The progress of the Ottomans in the Aegean and the Moria alarmed the Venetians. To protect its bases and its trade routes, the Most Serene Republic declared war on the Ottomans in 1463. 
From the war's beginning, the Ottoman navy demonstrated that it had become a force that even the Venetians had to reckon with. The fighting raged across the Aegean and Greece, with the Venetians barely able to hold back the Ottoman advance. In 1466, the Venetians sued for peace, but their terms were rejected by Mehmed, who demanded the islands of Imbros and Lemnos an annual tribute. Then, in 1470, Mehmed personally led a powerful land and sea attack on Negropont, the great island off the east coast of Greece that had been a key Venetian colony since 1390. The fleet that issued out of Gallipoli and Constantinople was so large that Venetian observers likened its ship's masts to a forest at sea. The fighting for Negropont's capital of Chalcis was so fierce that the Ottoman chroniclers described the combatants as mingled together hair to hair and beard to beard. On July 12th, the city fell. The Ottomans slaughtered all the men, enslaved the women and children. The Venetian governor of Negropont, Paolo Erizo, begged not to be beheaded. His wish was granted. He was cut in half at the waist. By 1475, the Venetians were once again suing for peace. Again, Mehmed rejected their pleas. Two years later, the Ottoman fleet took Lepanto on the west coast of Greece from the Venetians. Meanwhile, Ottoman armies captured much of northern Albania and Ottoman raiding parties ravaged the countryside near Venice itself. At last, in 1479, the Venetians were finally able to come to terms with the Ottomans. The most serene republic had to accept the loss of Negropont, Lemnos, most of the former Venetian territories in mainland Greece, and Albania. The Venetians also paid 10,000 ducats a year in tribute to the Sultan. Flush with victory over the preeminent naval power of the day, Mehmed next, Mehmed next prepared two major amphibious expeditions. The first expedition targeted Rhodes, the island fortress of the Hospitaller Knights of St. John. Founded in the 11th century after the First Crusade, the Knights of St. John were the last of the great military orders still active in the Middle East. They were the Christian counterparts of the Muslim Sea Ghazis in that they mixed holy war with piracy. From Rhodes and a handful of bases scattered along the Anatolian coast, the Knights attacked Muslim shipping and coastal settlements. Muslims regarded the Knights as so skillful that they could capture a fully armed galley with a rowboat. In the late spring of 1480, an Ottoman invasion force of more than 150 vessels carrying 50,000 troops descended on Rhodes. The defenders amounted to 4,000 knights and supporting troops. Yet the knights put up a tenacious resistance, beating back all Ottoman assaults. At last, after 89 days, the Ottomans conceded failure, embarked on their ships, and sailed away. The other expedition was at first more successful. Mehmed gave one of his most trusted viziers, Gedik Ahmed Pasha, a magnificent fleet that Ottoman writers described as looking like a thousand-handed giant. This fleet sailed up the west coast of Greece to Albania, then crossed the Adriatic Sea to southern Italy and landed an army. This army then marched on and seized the port of Otranto. From there, Ottoman raiding parties ravaged Apulia as far north as Bari and Taranto. The landing at Otranto was merely the opening of a wider campaign of conquest in Italy. Yet before the Ottomans could make further advances, Sultan Mehmed the Conqueror died. 
many Christians regarded this event as divine intervention. The vice-chancellor of the Hospitallers declared that God has not conceded us any blessing more important, better, or more appreciated than the death of Mehmed. In the aftermath of the Sultan's death, Gedik Ahmed Pasha and his army were marooned in Otranto. Christian forces from all over Italy besieged the city until the Ottomans surrendered on September 10, 1481. Despite the failures of the expeditions to Rhodes and Italy, Mehmed's maritime campaigns had accomplished much. These campaigns had pushed the Ottoman frontier at sea far to the west and also secured Ottoman bases on the major trading routes to and from the Middle East. Mehmed's successor as Sultan, Bayezid II, was determined to continue Ottoman momentum at sea. He devoted still more resources to the fleet, further increasing its size. More importantly, he recruited a number of leading corsairs to serve as his naval commanders, including Burak Reis and most notably Kemal Reis. The Ottoman sources describe these mariners as able to steer their ships as cavalrymen their horses. In 1499, Bayezid II declared war on Venice. The Ottoman army and navy moved quickly against the Venetian bases in Greece, Modon, Koron, Nafplio, and Monembasia on the coasts of the Moria, Lepanto in the Gulf of Corinth, and the island of Corfu. At Zoncio, near Lepanto, the Ottoman fleet under Kemal Reis clashed with the Venetian navy in a grueling three-day sea fight. In the end, the Ottomans soundly defeated the Venetians. The Battle of Zoncio signaled the passing of Venetian naval dominance and the maritime ascendance of the Ottomans. In the course of the war, the Venetians lost the majority of their Greek bases. When the Venetians finally managed to obtain peace from the Ottomans, they retained only Nafplio, Monembasia, and Corfu. After 1503, the Ottoman offensive in the Mediterranean finally faltered. The sublime port was forced to turn its attention to the Middle East, where it was facing challenges from the other great Muslim empires of the day the Shia Safavids, and the Mamluk Sultanate. The ninth Ottoman Sultan, Selim, nicknamed the Grim, achieved significant victories over both. In 1514, at the Battle of Chaldiran, Ottoman cannons and Janissary arquebusiers destroyed the Safavid cavalry. The Ottomans extended their power to Mesopotamia and confined the Safavids to Iran. Another decisive moment in the rise of the Ottomans came with Selim's subjugation of the Mamluk Sultanate. Descendants of Saladin's Turkic slave soldiers, the Mamluks dominated Syria and Egypt and were the guardians of Islam's holiest cities, Mecca and Medina. In campaigns in 1516 and 1517, Selim defeated the Mamluks and annexed their lands to the Ottoman Empire. Although he reigned for a comparatively brief eight years, from 1512 to 1520, Selim the Grim was one of the most important Ottoman sultans. His conquests doubled the size of his dynasty's realm. After him, the Ottomans ruled an empire straddling Europe and the Middle East. Finally, he had the great good fortune of having just a single heir, which removed the need for the bloody rights of Ottoman succession. When he died, that heir duly and peacefully came to the throne. The new sultan would be the greatest and most famous of all Ottoman rulers. In the West, he would be known as Suleiman the Magnificent.
At the beginning of the 16th century, Venice was a city and state unlike any other on earth. To an approaching traveler, Venice appeared to float on the blue-green waters of its lagoon. The religious, political, and civic card of the city was St. Mark's Square, named after Venice's patron saint. The square was dominated by its soaring campanile and surrounded by magnificent public buildings. None were more splendid than the Basilica. Plain when it had been first built, the great church, seat of the Patriarch of Venice, had become ever more flamboyantly decorated as Venice's strength and wealth waxed. Prominently displayed on the great church's loggia were four bronze horses, booty taken by Venetian forces in the sack of Constantinople during the Fourth Crusade. Winding sinuously through the city was the Grand Canal. It was lined by the palazzi of the Venetian nobility. Elsewhere in Italy, the city palaces of the nobles were veritable fortresses with high walls studded by watchtowers. Not so in Venice. The great of the city built their homes with wide gates and tall windows, and in a distinctive architecture that exuberantly blended Byzantine, Islamic, and Northern European styles. Radiating in all directions from St. Mark's Square and the Grand Canal were the more common quarters of the city. They were clamorous, noisome, and above all crowded. Over a 100,000 people packed into Venice, making her the third largest city in all Christendom, after Paris and Naples. In the Sestieri of Castello was the true source of Venetian sea power, the arsenal. 45 hectares of dockyards, workshops, rope walks, and armories the arsenal was the largest industrial enterprise in Europe before the 19th century. There, 16,000 workers built and maintained Venice's vast fleet of merchant ships and war galleys. The Florentine Dante vividly described their labors in the 21st canto of his Inferno. As in the arsenal of the Venetians, boils in water the tenacious pitch, to smear their unsound vessels over again, for sale they cannot and instead thereof, one makes his vessel new, and one recocks the ribs of that which many a voyage has made. One hammers at the prow, one at the stern. This one makes oars, and that one cordage twists. Another mends the mainsail and the mizzen. The lifeblood of Venice had always been trade. The city had been founded in the 5th century by refugees fleeing the fall of the Roman Empire. These refugees had found sanctuary on the archipelago in the center of what would become the Lagoon of Venice. With little land to cultivate, they had turned to the sea for their livelihoods. And they had thrived. During the Middle Ages, Venice became the commercial nexus between Europe and the Middle East. In 1082, the Byzantine emperor issued a golden bull, awarding the Venetians the right to trade free of taxation anywhere in his empire. In the 13th century, Venice gained another lucrative boost when its merchants tapped into the eastern luxuries brought by the Silk Road to ports on the Black Sea and the eastern Mediterranean. By the 15th century, the Venetians had largely gained the upper hand over their main competitors, the Genoese and the Pisans, and had made themselves the foremost commercial power in the Mediterranean. Venice was unusual in Europe in being a large, powerful state ruled by a republic. The head of state was the doge, who was appointed for life through a mind-bogglingly complex process that blended election and sortition, or selection by lot. But real power was in the hands of the Venetian nobility. 
Unlike elsewhere in Europe, Venetian nobles were not landholding warriors, but seagoing merchants. All nobles had seats on the Great Council, the fundamental governing body of Venice. In 1323, membership in the council had been closed to new members. Families that henceforth had a right to membership in the council were listed in a so-called Book of Gold. Historians have traditionally seen this event, the serata, or closing, as the transformation of the Venetian state from an open republic to a closed oligarchy. In fact, the serata did not create an oligarchy, since hundreds of families and well over a thousand members could sit on the Great Council. The council's membership represented 1% of the entire Venetian population, an extremely high rate of representative government. The Great Council considered all important matters facing Venice, but its large size made it ill-suited for rapid action. To compensate, the council created committees that could efficiently handle state business. One was the Forty, which acted as a court of appeal and prepared legislation for debate and voting in the Great Council. The other committee was the Senate. Consisting of 60 members, the Senate commanded fleets, named captains, and dispatched embassies. Finally, the Great Council provided three of the ten members of the Signoria, the Doge's Council, the highest committee in the Venetian government. Collectively, the government was often known as La Serenissima, from Venice's proud title of Most Serene Republic. During the Middle Ages, this republic had acquired an overseas empire. As their trade grew, the Venetians became concerned with protecting the shipping routes down the Adriatic Sea. They therefore sought to take control of Dalmatia, on the eastern side of the Adriatic. The Venetians' ambitions were opposed by the powerful kings of Hungary, who also had designs on this region. Hungarian opposition was a constant threat until the 16th century, but the Venetians managed to maintain their grip on key ports and coastal territories. The crucial moment in the emergence of Venice as an imperial power was the sack of Constantinople in 1204 during the Fourth Crusade. The Venetians had largely initiated and led the siege and sack of the Byzantine capital. In the subsequent division of the Byzantine Empire among the Crusaders, the Venetians received choice territories. Afterwards, the Doges proudly claimed the title of Lord of Three-Eighths of the Roman Empire. In addition to their existing holdings in Dalmatia, the Venetians eventually came to control the Albanian ports of Durazzo and Scutari, Corfu, the Ionian Islands, the Greek cities of Lepanto, Patras, Modon, Koron, Monimbasia, Nafplio, and Argos, Negropont, numerous Aegean islands, and Crete. The population and wealth of these territories made valuable contributions to Venetian power and prosperity. Even more importantly, these territories secured Venice's maritime access to the markets of the Middle East. Collectively, the overseas empire came to be called the Stato de Mar, to distinguish it from the city of Venice itself and the terra firma, the expansive Venetian territories on the Italian mainland. What made the empire and commercial prosperity possible was the Venetian navy. Originally, the Venetians had fought as allies and auxiliaries of the Byzantine fleet. As Byzantine power waned, the Venetians stepped more and more to the fore. By the 12th century, they had become the major naval power in the eastern Mediterranean. Venice maintained a permanent fleet of warships to control the crucial waters of the Adriatic. 
As Venice's empire grew, other standing squadrons were established in the major colonies, such as Crete. From the 11th to the 15th centuries, Venice's only real naval and commercial rival was Genoa. The two great city-states fought a series of wars. The conflict between them culminated in the War of Chioggia from 1378 to 1381. After it, Venice and Genoa agreed to maintain carefully delineated maritime and commercial spheres. Venice continued to control the trade in spices and other luxuries out of the Middle Eastern ports, while Genoa dominated the commerce in bulk goods, alum, wheat, and dried fruits from the Black Sea. Two factors made Venice a formidable sea power. The first factor was the extraordinary shipbuilding and arms manufacturing capabilities of the Venetian arsenal. Venice's government built its arsenal as early as 1104 to store ships and arms in readiness. Then, between 1302 and 1325, the original complex was expanded with the addition of the new arsenal. It consisted of shipways and sheds for the building and outfitting of galleys. Soon the arsenal's workforce of skilled shipwrights and craftsmen achieved for galleys something resembling modern assembly line mass production. Instead of completing one galley at a time, numerous vessels were simultaneously built in stages as they moved through the arsenal. The Venetians were also precocious users of shipboard cannons, deploying them for the first time against the Genoese in the War of Chioggia. Afterward, the Venetian arsenal became a leading European center of cannon manufacturing. Finally, after encountering the huge Ottoman fleets after 1453, the Venetian government ordered a further expansion of the arsenal. The addition was called the newest arsenal. Its purpose was to build and store a reserve of 50 galleys. 25 were kept in basins, fully armed and equipped so that they could be sent to sea on short notice. The rest were drawn up on land under sheds, complete in hull and superstructure and ready to be launched as soon as they were cocked. The Venetian navy therefore consisted of two distinct forces. There was the permanent squadron of galleys maintained during both peace and war. When a large-scale naval conflict broke out, these squadrons were massively reinforced by galleys drawn from the reserve, kept in readiness in the basins and shipsheds of the arsenal. The most important factor making Venice a formidable sea power was the high quality of its galley crews. As a city completely oriented toward overseas trade, Venice had a large seafaring population. In his famous farewell address of 1423, Doge Tommaso Mocenigo totted up Venice's fleet and the sailors crewing it. 45 war galleys with 11,000 sailors, 300 large merchant roundships with 8,000 sailors, and 3,000 smaller cargo ships with 17,000 sailors. Mocenigo's total of 36,000 sailors was an exaggeration. Still, it gives a good sense of the numbers of skilled mariners that Venice could call into service. When Venice mobilized for a large-scale war, sailors left the merchant ships to crew the war galleys. The galley captains, the sopra comiti, were nobles commissioned by the Great Council. They usually brought two advantages to their posts. The first advantage was extensive experience at sea. As youths and young men, Venetian nobles were merchant ship captains who made economic contributions to their family fortunes. They were therefore familiar with navigation, ship handling, and the management of crews. 
Furthermore, the government required all nobles to serve as gentlemen volunteers on war galleys for four years before they became eligible for command. The second advantage that Venetian captains brought to galley service was money. Command of a galley was deemed an honor, one that nobles sought to fulfill as well as they could in order to uphold their reputations. They therefore frequently invested their own fortunes towards ensuring that their warships were as well manned, armed, and outfitted as possible. The Venetians also made extensive use of their non-seafaring population in their war fleets. As we'll see in the next part of this podcast, the Spanish, as well as the other Italian states, mainly used convicts and slaves as rowers on their galleys. By contrast, the Venetians overwhelmingly employed freemen. At first, Venetian oarsmen were volunteers who served for wages. However, the expansion of the fleet after 1453, especially the creation of the reserve galleys, required more manpower than voluntary enlistment could provide. The Republic then set up a system of conscription. In Venice itself, the guilds of craftsmen, shopkeepers, and gondoliers provided rowers for the fleet. The overseas territories, especially Crete and Dalmatia, furnished even larger numbers of rowers. The use of free rowers gave Venetian galleys a distinct advantage in combat because it meant that a vessel's entire crew, and not just the marines, sailors, and gunners, could fight. Venice's skilled free manpower gave its war galley fleet a qualitative edge. However, the manpower also carried significant limitations. Whenever Venice sent its fleet to war, the majority of its merchant ships would become idle for lack of sailors. For a city whose lifeblood was trade, a long naval war spelt economic ruin. Therefore, Venice always hesitated to enter large-scale naval wars. If Venice did fight such a war, it tried to end it as quickly as possible. The most serious shortcoming of Venice's naval manpower was that there was simply not enough of it. Venetian manpower resources were generally sufficient for its wars during the 15th century. However, these resources proved wholly inadequate during the 16th century when Spain and the Ottoman Empire became major Mediterranean powers. Both Spain and the Ottomans were huge empires with bottomless reserves of manpower. By contrast, Venice remained largely a city-state with a patchwork of Italian and Mediterranean territories. Even after mobilizing the populations of these territories, the Serenissima could hardly compete with the Spanish and Ottoman Leviathans. The rise of the Ottomans after 1453 posed an unprecedented threat to Venice. During the Middle Ages, Venice had been one of Europe's foremost crusading states, playing a conspicuous part in many of the great expeditions to the east against the infidel. Thus, the Serenissima's first reaction to the appearance of a powerful Ottoman navy was to try to destroy it. The wars of 1461 to 1478 and 1499 to 1503 were rude lessons that the Ottomans had become a dangerous force at sea and that the Venetians could no longer take their naval preeminence for granted. Yet Venice quickly recovered from these two defeats. At the conclusion of each peace, the Ottoman sultan allowed the Venetian ambassador, the Balio, to resume his duties in Constantinople. More importantly, Venetian merchants were welcomed back into the Ottoman Empire. The message to the Venetians was clear. 
the Ottomans would not tolerate the presence of Christian bases or fleets in seas that they regarded as their own. At the same time, they wished to continue the long-established and highly profitable commercial relationship with the Venetians. The Venetians even managed to make a valuable addition to their overseas empire. The great island of Cyprus was a Christian kingdom, the last remnant of the Crusader states. The Venetians had long coveted Cyprus and had been gradually extending their influence over it. In 1489, the Venetian Republic forced Caterina Coronaire, the last queen of Cyprus and a Venetian noblewoman, to hand over the island to its control. Large, populous, and located just off the coast of Anatolia and Syria, at the junction of the major Middle Eastern trade routes, Cyprus more than made up for the Aegean islands and Greek ports recently lost to the Ottoman. For the Venetians, the event that had the most important long-term consequences was the conquest of the Mamluk Sultanate by the Ottomans. With Egypt and Syria now in their hands, the Ottomans controlled the entire coastline of the Middle East. Furthermore, the eastern Mediterranean was increasingly an Ottoman lake. Venice's eastern trade, the foundation of its economic wealth, therefore came to depend on peaceful relations with the sublime port. Venice entered the 16th century in a delicate position. The merchant republic was at the height of its prosperity. Wealth from the eastern trade and other commercial enterprises poured into the city. That wealth was in the process of transforming Venice into the stunning Renaissance city that beguiles millions of tourists today. Furthermore, despite the losses to the Ottomans, the Serenissima still ruled an overseas empire from the Adriatic to Cyprus. And yet, there were also growing dangers. The Venetians had lost their naval hegemony to Ottoman armadas that were overwhelming in size and increasingly daunting in skill. Venetian trade now passed through Ottoman-controlled waters and ports. Venice's position would then become excruciatingly difficult with the outbreak of a great war between the two Mediterranean superpowers, Imperial Spain and the Ottoman Empire. The nature, course, and outcome of that war would be shaped by a naval technology that had dominated the Mediterranean since antiquity, the war galley. By the time of Lepanto, the galley had dominated naval warfare in the Mediterranean for over 2,000 years. Lepanto was this warship's last and perhaps greatest battle. 80% of all the galleys in the Mediterranean fought there. Meanwhile, out in the Atlantic, a new ship was taking shape that would, in time, rival, then supplant the galley, the cannon-armed, broadside-firing sailing ship. It has long been fashionable to consider the galleys of Lepanto as anachronisms and to argue that their survival, even long after the battle, reflected the inherent backwardness of Mediterranean civilization. In fact, the galleys' long domination of the Mediterranean was due to its suitability to that sea's environmental and geographical conditions. Any discussion of the Mediterranean environment and its impact on history must begin with Fernand Brodel. One of the greatest historians of the 20th century, Brodel produced his masterpiece in 1949, La Méditerranée et le monde méditerranéen à l'époque de Philippe II, The Mediterranean and the Mediterranean World at the Time of Philip II. It examined how the geography and environment of the Mediterranean determined human history within its boundaries. After Brodel, no historian could ever take the physical realities of the Mediterranean for granted. 
the Mediterranean is an enclosed sea. It has just two natural outlets to other waters, in the west to the Atlantic Ocean and in the east to the Black Sea. Because the Mediterranean is landlocked, it has no appreciable tide. Even more importantly, its weather is predictable. Although Mediterranean storms can be as violent as any, they tend to occur in the winter months between mid-October and mid-March. For the rest of the year, the weather is generally and famously fine. Dangerous seas are rare, skies usually unclouded, visibility clear. Another important characteristic of the Mediterranean is that its bottom drops off quickly offshore to a safe depth nearly everywhere. Finally, on almost every coast, the Mediterranean is lined by wide beaches of firm yellow sand. These characteristics of the Mediterranean were perfect for the galley. The placid sea conditions for the bulk of the year meant that the vessel's low freeboard, the distance between the water and the main deck, and general lack of seaworthiness did not matter significantly. The frequent dead calms made rowing a superior, more reliable mode of propulsion to sails. The drop-off of the sea bottom allowed galleys to approach very close to shore, and the absence of tides permitted even sizable oared ships to be run onto beaches. There was also a compelling military reason why the galley was the preferred Mediterranean warship. Until cannon came of age as the dominant naval weapon, decisive results in combat at sea could be obtained by only two methods, ramming and boarding. Because they could move independently of the winds and waves, galleys could do both far better than sailing ships. Moreover, as we'll soon see, the introduction and early years of cannon at sea made the galley an even more formidable warship. Shipbuilding in the 16th century Mediterranean was far from a science. Instead, it was a craft practiced by master shipwrights. In designing ships, these shipwrights obeyed largely unwritten artisan traditions. More importantly, they followed personal judgment honed by experience. In addition, builders of ships had diverse approaches as well as varying levels of skill. This was true even in the arsenal of Venice. As a result, no two galleys were ever exactly the same. Furthermore, as we'll see later, each Mediterranean naval power had its own galley-building philosophy based not just on strategic, operational, and tactical considerations, but on political, social, and economic imperatives. Nevertheless, the basic form and even dimensions of the 16th century oared warship were largely set. The dominant requirement in galley design was to create an efficient rowing vessel. Therefore, the hull had to be long and narrow in order to incorporate the maximum number of oarsmen and to minimize hydrodynamic drag. The hull also had to lie low in the water. Otherwise, rowers would have had to use excessively long oars. To give oarsmen better leverage and to permit the hull to be narrower, the thole pins that supported the oars and acted as a lever when rowing were mounted on longitudinal beams called apostis. On both port and starboard sides, the apostis were set well out from the hull and ran along most of its length. They were mounted on transverse supports, one at each end of the galley. The rectangle created by the apostis beams and their supports was called the rowing frame. To maximize rowing power, every scrap of available space aboard a galley was occupied by oarsmen. 
something on the order of 95% of a galley's deck space, was given over to them and their benches. This left available for other uses just the tapering decks at the bow and stern. Connecting bow and stern was a narrow gangway, the corsia, that ran between the rowing benches. The stern was the galley's brain and nerve center. On the stern's poop deck were concentrated the ship's steering, signaling, and command functions. The bow was devoted to fighting. There were found the vessel's heavy cannons. On Spanish and most Italian galleys, the bow also featured a raised fighting platform called an arubada. Finally, all galleys sported a spur, called a sprone in Italian. The spur had a reinforced iron-shod tip. Many writers and historians have mistakenly viewed the spur as a ram. This misconception has distorted tactical analyses of galley warfare, including the Battle of Lepanto. But the spur's placement high above the waterline meant that it could not act as a ship-sinking weapon, like the ram of a classical Greek trireme. Instead, the spur was a boarding bridge. It was meant to ride up over an opposing galley's apostis and lodge firmly amid the rowing benches. The boarding party would then rush over the spur and leap down onto the enemy deck. The majority of galleys were light or ordinary galleys. Galera in Spanish, Galera or Gallia in Italian, Gallia Sottile in Venetian. An ordinary galley measured about 41 meters long and was 5 to 6 meters broad. Its displacement was about 200 tons. The ordinary galley had 24 banks of oars on each side. There were also larger, more powerful galleys called bastarde. In 16th century Italian, bastardo, or bastard, meant a mongrel. A galera basterda could reach 55 meters in length, 7 in width, and sported up to 36 benches. A specialized type of galley was the galera de lanterna, or lantern galley. This galley was so called after the large and ornately decorated lanterns, usually three, mounted on its stern. Lanterns were important signaling devices, as well as rallying points at night. More importantly, they were the symbols of command par excellence. A flagship in Italian Capitana, or vice-flagship, Padrona, was always a lantern galley. Most lantern galleys were not flagships, however. They were elite fighting vessels. Because of their importance, lantern galleys were usually bastarde. During the 15th century, in the heyday of their eastern trade, the Venetians had developed the Gallia Grossa, the Great Galley. As its name indicates, the Great Galley was larger than the ordinary type, measuring 50 meters in length, 8 meters in width, and with a considerably higher freeboard. Rowing power was provided by 165 rowers on 27 benches and sailing propulsion by three sails. But the Great Galley was not a warship. It was a trading vessel. It could carry 250 to 300 tons of cargo in its capacious hold and more on its deck. In addition, when provided with marines, the Great Galley could fight off pirates on its own. However, because of its large crew of rowers, sailors, and marines, the operating costs of the Great Galley were very high. By the 16th century, Great Galleys were no longer commercially viable, and the Venetians turned back to sailing roundships. Being a practical as well as a frugal people, the Venetians did not scrap their Great Galleys. Instead, they mothballed them in the arsenal. 
the great galleys would return to make a significant contribution at the Battle of Lepanto. There was also a range of oared fighting ships that were smaller than the galley. The most important was the galliot, a favorite of the corsairs of the Barbary coast. A typical galliot was 30 to 38 meters in length and had 16 to 23 rowing benches. It could carry a lighter armament and fewer fighting men than a galley, but it was much cheaper to operate and was thus a more cost-effective raiding vessel. All galleys were equipped with sails of the triangular, latine type common to Mediterranean sea craft. Sails were particularly useful for long-distance movement. With favorable following winds, a galley could achieve a speed of up to 12 knots. Sails were also useful for supplementing the oars, particularly when chasing or fleeing an enemy. A galley's sailing qualities were always secondary to rowing. The best information about the performance of oared warships comes from the work of William Ledyard Rogers. An American admiral and naval historian, Rogers conducted a series of experiments with U.S. Navy 12-man racing cutters, then projected their performance onto 16th century galleys. Rogers concluded that an oarsman could produce 140 watts of output for 10 hours, 170 watts for 4 hours, and 200 watts for 1 hour. A galley's sustained cruising speed was likely to have been 3.5 to 4 knots. The very highest level of exertion of 300 watts, enough for 26 strokes a minute, could only be sustained for 20 or so minutes. This output allowed for a sprint speed of 7 knots. Whether or not a galley achieved the standard of performance depended on the quality of its rowing gang, in Italian, the Ciorme. At the beginning of the 16th century, an ordinary galley had 24 benches or banks of oars on a single level. Each bench was angled so that three rowers could sit side by side with their own oar. An ordinary galley therefore had a chiorme of 144 rowers with 144 oars. This rowing arrangement was called a la sensile. Around 1550, a la sensile rowing began to be superseded by a different arrangement. Instead of each oarsman having his own oar, all the rowers on a bench pulled together on a single large oar. This new rowing arrangement was called Ascalocio. Why Ascalocio came to be preferred over Alla Sensile is not entirely clear. One reason might have been the quality of available rowers. The growth of galley fleets after 1550 might have outstripped the availability of skilled rowers. In Alla Sensile, all the oarsmen had to be skilled. In Ascalocio, only one rower, the one furthest out on the bench, had to be competent with the oar. The others simply provided power. Another reason could have been the scarcity of wood. As the number of war galleys in the Mediterranean increased, shipbuilding timber became increasingly rare. The transition from Alla Sensile to Ascalocio changed the number of oars on an ordinary galley from 144 small to 48 large oars, which affected considerable savings in wood. Finally, Ascalocio rowing had one advantage over Alla Sensile. It allowed the chiorme to be increased. So long as the end rower remained a skilled oarsman, the number of rowers on a bench could in theory be unlimited. The key performance characteristic of the galley and all other oared fighting vessels was that the longer and harder the chiorme was worked, the less available energy it would have for an emergency. 
This relationship held not just for the short term, it was cumulative. Oarsmen who were worked to the limit for several hours might take days to recover their full strength and stamina. One of the most important abilities of a galley commander was the careful management of the chiurme to ensure good performance while conserving energy reserves. For most of its long life as a weapon system, the war galley had two main methods of combat, ramming and boarding. From the 7th to the 12th centuries, the Byzantine navy deployed a third method to devastating effect, attack with incendiaries. On the unstable and crowded wooden decks of a war galley, incendiary weapons were normally too dangerous and volatile to be of practical use. The Byzantines concocted the mysterious substance called Greek fire and employed it to destroy Slavic and Arab fleets. However, the formula for Greek fire, a carefully guarded secret of the Byzantine state, was lost some time after its last recorded use around 1187. Ramming had been a very common tactic during antiquity. The Athenian and Carthaginian fleets had been famous for their skills with the ram. But ramming required a very high order of skill. Only highly professional navies could use it with any degree of success. Equally importantly, ramming sank enemy vessels. From antiquity onwards, Mediterranean navies always preferred capturing enemy galleys. Naval prizes were lucrative for both the crew of the victorious galleys and the states that sponsored them. Finally, the bronze-sheathed underwater ram made a galley difficult to beach while contributing nothing to its seaworthiness. For all these reasons, ramming and the ram were abandoned sometime during the Dark Ages. This left boarding. Before even trying to board, an attacking galley would often attempt to soften up its victim with a barrage of missiles. To then board successfully, the attacker had to come into firm contact with the victim and hold there long enough for the boarding party to swarm onto the enemy deck. The attacking galley then had to maintain its position to support the boarders with missile fire and reinforcements. If the boarders overwhelmed the defenders, then they captured the ship and any surviving crew. If the boarders failed, their only chance for survival was to retreat onto their own galley, which would then try to break contact and retreat. Boarding fights would certainly involve a galley's sailors and free armed rowers. But all of the major Mediterranean navies relied on specialized marines whose only role on a galley was to fight the enemy marines and crew. Marines represented the war galley's main fighting power. Following the disappearance of Greek fire, boarding was the only tactic in Mediterranean naval warfare for 300 years. This situation changed late in the 14th century with the deployment of cannons at sea. The Genoese and the Venetians used cannons against each other during the War of Chioggia from 1378 to 1381. During the 15th century, shipboard artillery spread to all Mediterranean navies. By the beginning of the 16th century, cannons were standard galley weapons. There was only one place where heavy cannons could be effectively mounted on a galley, the bow. A galley's deck was too narrow and packed with rowing benches for the installation of cannons, especially after taking recoil into account. In addition, a galley's sides were too weak and too low, and the apostis beams obscured aim. The stern also had to be ruled out. It was entirely given over to the galley's officers, steersmen, navigators, and sailors. 
Moreover, turning the stern to bring guns to bear would have exposed a ship's structurally most vulnerable point to the enemy. For most of the 16th century, heavy cannons were cast from bronze. Thus, they were expensive in terms of both material and labor. Even great imperial powers like Spain and the Ottomans had only a limited number of cannon available to equip their ships. Nevertheless, war galleys mounted an ever more formidable amount of ordnance as the 16th century wore on. A galley's main gun was always mounted on its center line. Because the whole length of the corsia, or gangway, between the rowing benches was available to absorb recoil, this gun could be very large indeed. By the middle of the 16th century, galleys commonly had a centerline muzzle-loading piece mounted on a recoiling sledge that was capable of firing shot weighing up to 60 pounds. By comparison, the largest guns on HMS Victory, Admiral Horatio Nelson's flagship, at the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805 were two 68-pounder forecastle carronades. A galley's main gun was then often flanked by up to six other cannons. Because these cannons could only recoil the length of the gun platform, they were much lighter than the centerline gun, ranging from 7 to 20 pounders. In addition to the heavy cannons mounted in the bow, galleys also had smaller breech-loading guns called versos in Spanish. These were light enough to be mounted on swivels, not just at the bow, but also along the sides and at the stern. Loaded with small shot weighing 1 or 2 pounds, or with scatter shot consisting of musket balls and metal fragments, these swivel guns were anti-personnel weapons used to sweep the decks of enemy galleys at close range. Even within the same navy, there was never a standard armament for a galley. Instead, the guns carried by each galley depended on what was available in the arsenals and on the status of its commander. For example, one Venetian galley in 1566 had one 50-pounder cannon, three 6-pounders, two 3-pounders, and 14 swivel guns while another Venetian galley in 1573 had one 50-pounder, three six-pounders, one three-pounder, and 20 swivel guns. Hollywood movies and Warner Brothers cartoons have led too many people to believe that black powder cannons fired exploding cannonballs. In fact, until the late 19th century, the standard cannon ammunition was solid shot. Solid shot did not explode relying entirely on weight and kinetic energy for its destructive power. Exploding cannonballs, or shells, were already known in the 16th century. However, these shells were fused by a piece of slow match, which had to be lit before firing. Using them effectively involved a hair-raising procedure that called for delicate timing and ample luck. They were therefore only employed during sieges and never at sea. 16th century galley's suite of bow guns made it a superior gun platform to the sailing ship, firing side-mounted or broadside cannons. As long as guns were made out of bronze and were therefore expensive and scarce, a sailing ship's broadside was limited to just a handful of medium-sized cannons. A galley had a tremendous advantage because it could bring a very heavy gun to bear without regard to the wind. Three key characteristics of 16th century cannons determined how they were used on galleys. First, bronze smoothbore cannon were inherently inaccurate weapons. They had an effective range, that is the range where a shot could be aimed and have a reasonable chance of hitting its intended target 
of between 200 and 500 meters. Even within this range, accuracy dropped off quickly with distance. Therefore, most Mediterranean gunners preferred to fire at the closest possible range. As we shall see, the only possible exceptions were Venetian artillerists. The second key characteristic of 16th century galley cannon was they were slow and cumbersome to reload. Heavy cannon were all muzzle loaders. They were recharged with powder and shot from the front. The centerline gun could be reloaded by its cannon crew after it had recoiled down the length of the gangway. It then had to be dragged back into firing position. Reloading the flanking bow guns was even more difficult. The limited space on a galley's bow meant that these guns could not be drawn back into the ship and under cover. Instead, the gunners had to stand out on the forward deck in front of their cannons, exposed the whole time to enemy fire. 16th century naval cannons' final key characteristic was they were rarely ship-killing weapons. Although all Mediterranean gunners knew the importance of aiming low to maximize their chances of hitting their targets, they almost never succeeded in holding an enemy vessel below the waterline, so causing it to sink. Instead, cannons could cause devastating casualties to an enemy crew. In 1528, a Genoese galley commanded by Filippo Doria, cousin of the famous naval condottiero Andrea Doria, fired its bow battery at the Spanish galley of Don Hugo de Moncada. The resulting carnage was described in a letter to Pope Clement VI. Count Filippo, who placed every attention in artillery as well as being a crack shot, discharged against the enemy his large artillery piece called the Basilisk. The terrible ball smashing through the stem and the forecastle of Moncada's galley with a horrible slaughter of men traveled from the bow to the stern along the gangway with such violence that, having already killed more than 30 between soldiers and sailors, it slew many honorable people on the poop deck so that the Marquis of Viso and Don Hugo were spattered with their blood and guts. Artillery bombardment did not replace boarding as the decisive move in galley combat. Instead, cannon fire was a useful ancillary to the boarding fight. In the 16th century Mediterranean, a well-armed galley, what the Spanish called a galley in good order, or galera en buen orden, was defined less by its armament of guns than by having a good crew, a team of skilled, experienced sailors, a strong complement of marines, and a complete chiurme. This emphasis on crew strength and quality points to the essential character of Mediterranean naval warfare. It was labor-intensive rather than capital-intensive. Galleys themselves were cheap and easy to build. In Genoa, the construction and outfitting of a galley hull took just two months. The Ottomans completed vessels just as quickly, but at one-third to one-quarter of the cost. The real challenge for all the Mediterranean powers was to mobilize enough high-quality manpower to row and fight their ships. Therefore, when they spoke of arming galleys, they meant primarily providing them with sailors, marines, and oarsmen, and only secondarily supplying them with adequate cannon and other gear. In tactical terms, the 16th century galley was a purely offensive weapon system. The galley resembled a Second World War fighter plane. To attack with its guns and marines, the whole ship had to be pointed at an enemy. When two equally matched galleys fought, they faced each other head-on. 
The combat then had an explosive all-or-nothing quality. A galley captain first had to decide when to make his final approach to contact at sprint speed. Because of the difficulty of slowing to a stop, then backing water, he had to follow through once committed. The captain next had to decide when to fire his guns. The maximum effective range of cannons was just under 200 meters. At sprint speed, a galley could cover that distance in under a minute, far more quickly than gunners could reload their cannons. Galleys could thus fire just one salvo from their bow guns before contact and boarding. The best and most effective shots were fired at the closest possible range. Galley captains and gunners, therefore, tried to hold their nerves and their own fire until after the enemy had fired first. Nothing could then stop a galley from discharging its full battery at what the Spanish vividly called clothing-burning range, the actual moment of impact when bow touched bow. After the guns had been discharged, the outcome of the combat would be determined by the close combat of the marines. In a full-dress battle between galley fleets, the ships formed up side by side in line abreast. The overriding consideration was to prevent gaps from developing in the line. An individual galley then had to conform its movements with the flagship as well as all the galleys around it. To maintain formation, a fleet would close with the enemy slowly at around two knots. Even at this deliberate pace, mistakes by an individual galley would be transmitted and magnified up and down the line. Finally, when the two fleets had slid into cannon range, there would be a sudden explosion of furious action as individual galleys surged ahead to try to exploit openings of the opposing line and so gain an advantage over the enemy craft opposing them. The operations and strategies of 16th century Mediterranean navies were determined by the galleys' characteristics. There is a powerful tendency today to reduce all naval warfare to the achievement of what strategists call command of the sea, based on the influential ideas of the American naval theorist Alfred Thayer Mahan. Command of the sea involves one fleet defeating its rival in a decisive battle. The victorious fleet then proceeds to blockade the enemy's ports, bottling up the foe's surviving naval forces and seagoing commerce. The enemy's warships and fleets Mahan preached, are the true objects to be assailed upon all occasions. Capturing geographic objectives, such as ports, was non-productive at best, dangerous distractions at worst. Yet John Gill Martin, one of the leading authorities on galley warfare, points out that Mahan founded his ideas on fleets of sailing ships of the line, particularly Nelson's Royal Navy. Mahan's ideas are not at all applicable to Mediterranean galley warfare. The nature of the war galley prevented it from remaining at sea for very long. Its low freeboard and general lack of seaworthiness made the galley particularly vulnerable to storms. More importantly, its huge manpower complement combined with insignificant cargo space meant that the galley could never hold enough provisions, particularly drinking water, to supply its crew for a prolonged period. William Rogers estimated that galleys could carry two weeks of water at most. Furthermore, with so many men crammed into such a small space, galleys were filthy, which led to outbreaks of disease. These characteristics meant that galley fleets had to return to port regularly for protection, provisions, and cleaning. They could therefore never exercise sustained close blockades, much less achieve command of the sea.
Instead, Gilmartin stresses that Mediterranean naval warfare was quintessentially amphibious warfare that focused on the possession of fortified ports along the rim of the Mediterranean and on the many islands scattered across the sea. Great fleet engagements, such as Preveza, Jerba, and above all Lepanto, might have been the dramatic high points of the 16th century Mediterranean naval conflict between the Ottomans and the Christian powers. But the characteristic and by far most common actions of this conflict were in fact those of the so-called Little War, or Guerre de Corse, an economic struggle of attrition featuring raids on enemy coasts and shipping. Ports in enemy territorial waters allowed a side to prosecute the little war to maximum effect. At the same time, countermeasures against enemy raiders required a network of bases from which protective squadrons could sally out to escort convoys and mount anti-piracy sweeps. Above all, possession of a major port increased the radius of action of a galley fleet. Such a port could act as a springboard to make further advances into enemy-held waters. Given their importance, capturing a sizable port with good base facilities usually required the mounting of a major amphibious expedition consisting of a fleet of war galleys as well as an army carried on transports. In turn, the approach of such an expedition often provoked the mobilization and intervention of a defending fleet. All the major naval battles of the 16th century revolved around an attempt by one power or another to seize a strategic base. The Mediterranean navies, minor as well as major, designed and armed their galleys according to their strategic, operational, and tactical requirements. In addition, they also had to obey economic, social, and political imperatives. Imperial Spain, its Italian dependencies of Naples and Sicily, the Italian states of Genoa, Florence, Savoy, and the papacy were generally on the defensive during the 16th century naval wars. The main mission of their navies was to engage in the chronic skirmishes of the Little War against Ottoman or Barbary corsairs. Their galleys needed to be able both to defeat enemy galleys at sea and to land strong relief forces to deal with Muslim raiding parties. These galleys also had to reach threatened, often isolated locations swiftly. Finally, they had to be capable of mounting counterattacks against Corsair bases. Spanish and Italian vessels had the greatest raw combat power of any galleys. Their artillery battery was typically the heaviest in the Mediterranean. But the real strength of these galleys was found in their complements of fighting marines. The prize for most formidable galleys went to the Hospitaller Knights of St. John. Their vessels embarked large numbers of knights, who were more heavily armored and armed than their adversaries, as well as being professional fighting men. Just behind were the galleys of Spain, the Spanish-Italian dependencies of Naples and Sicily, and Italian allies such as Genoa. Their marine contingents were made up of Spanish infantry of the Tercios, assigned to sea service. To give them a further edge in a sea fight, Spanish and Italian galleys had a specialized fighting platform erected at their bows, the Arumbada. Standing about the height of a man, measuring the width of the galley's hull, and about ten feet in length, the Arumbada gave a galley's arquebusiers an elevated vantage point from which to shoot and provided the marines of the boarding party with a crucial height advantage during the assault. Spanish and Italian galleys were fast and efficient under sail. 
This quality was very useful for getting to a threatened point on the coast or raiding a Muslim base. By contrast, these galleys' weighty artillery batteries and large complements of marines made them the slowest and least agile galleys under oars. However, the Spanish and Italians did not regard the sluggishness of their galleys as a significant disadvantage. With their fearsome combat power, their galleys did not have to run from anything. All they required was to keep their bows pointed at the enemy. The lesser importance of rowing on Spanish and Italian galleys in turn shaped the character and composition of their Chiorme rowing gangs. The Spanish and Italians always made use of some volunteer oarsmen. However, they lacked both Venice's large seagoing population and the Ottomans' power to conscript peasants for the rowing benches. In addition, their generally defensive posture required the Spanish and Italians to keep up standing galley squadrons, which in turn meant they had to maintain large numbers of rowers at the lowest possible cost. For these reasons, the Spanish and Italians turned to servile forced rowers, or forzati in Italian. The forzati would have included Muslim slaves taken either as prisoners of war or as captives from raids. However, there were never enough of either to satisfy demand. Therefore, the majority of forzati were convicts sentenced by Spanish and Italian courts to sentences on the rowing benches. As Mediterranean naval warfare intensified and fleets grew larger, Spanish and Italian courts punished more and more categories of crime with galley service. Very quickly, even non-naval Italian states were drawn in. In 1532, Andrea Doria persuaded the rulers of the small Republic of Lucca, which lacked a major port, to introduce the penalty of the galley. From then on, Lucchese Forzati were always present in the Ciurme of the Doria galleys. In filling their Ciurme with Forzati, the Spanish and Italians had to make some trade-offs. They had to accept less willing and less skillful oarsmen. This trade-off was tolerable because, as we've seen, the Spanish and Italian galleys emphasized raw combat power over rowing performance. It should come as no surprise that the Spanish and Italians were the first to adopt ascolocio rowing, in which all the rowers on a bench pulled a single large oar. Long before the Battle of Lepanto in 1571, all their galleys were rowed in this way. The Spanish and Italians also could not count on their oarsmen to fight. In combat, Forzati were chained to their oars. However, their powerful marine contingents more than compensated for their non-combatant rowers. The marines also nullified the potential security threat posed by large numbers of slaves and convicts. The major employers of slave oarsmen in the Mediterranean were the Barbary Corsairs and the Hospitaller Knights of St. John. They were, unsurprisingly, the most active prosecutors of the Little War. As a result, they had ample opportunities to take slaves from enemy ships and coastal settlements. Their chiurme consisted overwhelmingly of slaves, with some volunteers sprinkled in for skill at the oar. The Ottomans had entirely different strategic and tactical requirements for their galleys. During the 16th century, the Ottomans were almost always on the offensive. The characteristic operation for the Ottoman navy was the amphibious assault on a major fortified port. For the Ottoman galley then, in the words of John Gilmartin, its job was to get the siege forces to their objective and to prevent interference with their activities by enemy naval forces once there. 
In many respects, Ottoman galleys were the opposite of Spanish and Italian galleys in design. In terms of armament, in general, Ottoman galleys carried fewer cannons than their Spanish, Italian, and Venetian foes. The complement of specialized marines on Ottoman galleys was also less numerous. The Ottomans made no distinctions between their army and navy. The same soldiers served in both. An ordinary Ottoman galley's marine contingent consisted of a small complement of Kapekulu slave soldiers, spahis of the port, and janissaries, and a much larger number of timariots. Flagships and lantern galleys had stronger contingents of elite slave soldiers. The muster lists for the fleets sent against Jerba in 1560, Malta in 1565, Chios in 1566, and Cyprus in 1570 show that the Timor holders of the provinces of Greece, Bulgaria, the Aegean Islands, Western Anatolia, and Central Anatolia were called up for sea service. The Churme of Ottoman galleys overwhelmingly consisted of free men. From the earliest days of the fleet, the Ottomans conscripted peasants to serve as oarsmen. After 1501, the system became regularized and highly bureaucratized. The levy of rowers functioned as a kind of tax on the peasantry. Three months before the fleet was scheduled to put to sea, orders went out from the Divan in Constantinople to the officials of the districts required to provide oarsmen. In each district, a certain number of households would be required to provide a rower the ratio varying according to the size of the fleet and the size of the area where the government was making the levy. In 1551, for the fleet sent to Tripoli, the ratio was one oarsman per 23 households. In 1570-1571, for Cyprus, one oarsman per 15 households, and in 1572, following Lepanto, one oarsman per 8 households. All the provinces of the Balkans, Greece, and Anatolia were liable for the levy. To man the Chios fleet in 1566, the government conscripted oarsmen from Albania, Thrace, southern Greece, and the Aegean Islands. The Ottomans did make use of servile oarsmen. However, contrary to what many Christian chroniclers believe, unfree rowers and Ottoman fleets were always a distinct minority and were only used to supplement the conscripts. In 1566, Muslim sources record that out of a squadron of 42 galleys, three were rowed by servile oarsmen. A small number of Ottoman forzati were Christian prisoners of war and slaves. A larger group was composed of convicts. Ottoman courts sentenced men to galley service for a wide range of offenses, including burglary, robbery with violence, perjury, adultery, and public drunkenness. Ottoman galleys were more lightly constructed than Spanish and Italian ones. They also lacked the cumbersome Arumbada fighting platform. Not least, their armaments of guns and marines were significantly lighter. All these factors led to a vessel that was fast and agile under oars. Ottoman galleys were also the speediest under sails in the entire Mediterranean an indispensable attribute for their principal mission of ferrying invasion forces long distances. Ship for ship, Ottoman galleys were inferior in combat power to their Spanish and Italian counterparts. However, accomplishing their principal missions did not always require them to engage in battle. They just had to keep enemy naval forces at bay and prevent them from interfering with an Ottoman siege. If it did come down to a battle, 
the Ottomans had two tricks up their sleeves that shortened the odds. First, many of the Janissaries and all of the Sipahis of the port and Tamariots on board an Ottoman galley were armed with the Ottoman steppe nomad bow. As we've seen, in the hands of a skilled archer, the Ottoman bow was a superlative weapon, far superior in terms of range, accuracy, and rate of fire to the arquebus. Second, Ottoman chiurme consisted of free men who were armed and expected to fight in the most important boarding actions. Lightly armed and unarmored, a Balkan Greek or Anatolian peasant rower was no match for an armored knight of St. John or veteran Spanish infantryman of the Tercios, but they did have weight of numbers. When facing Spanish and Italian galleys, Ottoman galleys tried to use their agility and archery to counter their opponent's raw combat power. The Ottomans always tried to turn sea battles into confused melees. If possible, several of their ships would swarm single opponents approaching from astern or the sides. The Ottomans would pour arrows into their opponent, aiming to decimate and demoralize the crews. Only after the enemy ship had been softened up would the Ottomans board, sending over their marines and many of their rowers to overwhelm the defenders. The galleys of the Venetians were again distinctive from their Spanish and Ottoman counterparts. Venice's principal goal in war was to defend its ports and bases in the eastern Mediterranean against the Ottomans. The most common action for a Venetian galley was to run past or through Ottoman ships to deliver supplies and reinforcements to a threatened or besieged fortress port. As a result, Venetian galleys were the fastest ships in the Mediterranean under oars. This was the result of having the best designed ships as well as having the most skillful rowers. By contrast, Venetian galleys were inferior under sail. The Venetians accepted this drawback because their dense network of bases meant their ships never had to cover long distances. During most of the 16th century, Venice suffered from a perennial lack of manpower. This shortage especially affected the galleys' marines. Called scapoli, or uomi di spada, Venetian marines were the equal in fighting ability to the best troops in the Mediterranean. There just were never enough of them. This problem became acute as the century wore on and the Ottomans gobbled up more and more of Albania and Dalmatia, important recruiting grounds for Venetian scapoli. One way that the Venetians compensated for their lack of marines was with their free oarsmen. Like Ottoman chiurme, Venetian ones were expected to fight in the most important boarding actions. However, Ottoman conquests in the Aegean and the Balkans also ate into the supply of Venetian rowers. The Serenissima had no choice but to turn to Forzati. In 1545, one of the most experienced and able Venetian admirals, Cristoforo de Canal, experimented with convict rowers on one galley. His experiment was so successful that five more convict galleys were put into service. By the time of Lepanto, the Venetians had 16 convict galleys in their fleet. But the Republic always preferred free oarsmen. Also at Lepanto, many Venetian galleys were still rowed alla sensile by ciurme of volunteer and conscript rowers. The most effective Venetian counter to their declining manpower was their shipboard artillery. Venetian naval gunners were the finest anywhere in the 16th century. In addition, the foundries of the arsenal of Venice produced superb cannon, lighter and more powerful than those produced elsewhere. 
the Venetians could expect to hit their targets at much greater ranges than anyone else, out to 500 meters. John Gilmartin sums up the character of Venetian galleys this way, where the Spanish galley was a platform for infantry, the Venetian galley was a platform for artillery. Against enemy galleys, Venetian vessels sought to maximize their speed and agility under oars and the long-range hitting power of their guns. Only after these advantages had clearly given them the upper hand would the Venetians then close in and board. These then were the Spanish, Venetian, and Ottoman galleys that fought a 50-year war for domination of the Mediterranean. This war would be the galleys' apotheosis. The war would begin in 1521 on the island of Rhodes. In the fall of 1521, a letter reached Rhodes. Suleiman the Sultan, by the grace of God, King of Kings, Sovereign of Sovereigns, Most High Emperor of Byzantium and Trebizond, very powerful King of Persia, of Arabia, of Syria, and of Egypt, Supreme Lord of Europe and of Asia, Prince of Mecca and Aleppo, Lord of Jerusalem and ruler of the Universal Sea, to Philippe de Lille Adam, Grand Master of the Island of Rhodes, greeting. I congratulate you upon your new dignity and upon your arrival within your territories. I trust that you will rule there prosperously and with even more glory than your predecessors. I also mean to cultivate your favor. Rejoice then with me as a very dear friend that, following in the footsteps of my father, who conquered Persia, Jerusalem, Arabia, and Egypt, I have captured that most powerful of fortresses, Belgrade, during the late autumn, after which, having offered battle to the infidel, which they had not the courage to accept, I took many other beautiful and well-fortified cities and destroyed most of their inhabitants, either by sword or fire, the remainder being reduced to slavery. Now, after sending my numerous and victorious army into their winter quarters, I shall myself return in triumph to my court at Constantinople. Philippe de Villiers de Lille-Adam recognized the letter for what it was, a declaration of war. He immediately began preparing the defenses of Rhodes. Villiers de Lille-Adam was the 44th Grand Master of the Knights of St. John the ancient order of the Hospitallers, founded in Jerusalem in 1099. For two centuries, the knights had played a leading role in the defense of the crusader kingdoms of Utremer. After the fall of Utremer, the knights had conquered Rhodes for themselves. There, they had become the most fearsome naval warriors in the eastern Mediterranean. Their small but efficient galley fleet devastated Muslim shipping and coastal territories. In 1480, Sultan Mehmed II, conqueror of Constantinople, had attempted to destroy the knights with a massive amphibious invasion of Rhodes, but the desperate resistance of the knights had repulsed the Ottomans. The letter's writer, Suleiman, had ascended to the Sultan's throne in 1520. As the only son of his father Selim the Grim, Suleiman had come to power without first having to carry out the fratricidal rituals of Ottoman succession. Christian envoys in Constantinople were favorably impressed. The sultan is tall and slender, reported the Venetian balio, Tommaso Contarini, but tough with a thin, wiry face. Rumor has it that Suleiman is aptly named. Suleiman is Arabic for Solomon, is knowledgeable, and shows good judgment. The Christians hoped that the new Ottoman ruler would be peaceful. 
these hopes were immediately dashed. Suleiman inherited in full measure the world-spanning ambitions of the House of Osman. Moreover, he initiated a key change in Ottoman grand strategy. Expansion to the east, which had preoccupied Selim the Grim during his entire eight-year reign, had reached its limits. The Safavid Shah Ismail had learned to avoid battle against the Ottoman field armies. Instead, the Safavids tied down the Ottoman forces along the eastern frontiers in pointless skirmishing, raiding, and siege warfare. The eastern provinces of the Ottoman Empire were exhausted and war-ravaged. It was high time, Suleiman concluded, to turn westwards and attack Christendom. Suleiman began with two crucial pieces of unfinished business. First, in 1521, the Sultan mustered his army and led it out from Constantinople into the Balkans. His target was the great fortress of Belgrade. Key to the Danube frontier, Belgrade had blocked the Ottomans from advancing into the heart of the Kingdom of Hungary, the major Christian power in Eastern Europe. After a two-month-long siege, the fortress succumbed to Suleiman's armies. After taking Belgrade, as his letter to Villiers de lille Dame indicated, Suleiman turned his attention to Rhodes. The island was located just off the southwestern coast of Anatolia. Rhodes also sat squarely astride the Ottomans' maritime communications routes with their key eastern provinces of Syria and Egypt. So long as it remained in the hands of the Hospitallers and their dangerous galleys, Rhodes would be a threat to Ottoman coasts and merchant shipping. As soon as he had returned to Constantinople from Belgrade, Suleiman began preparations for an amphibious invasion of Rhodes. An important part of these preparations involved diplomacy. The Sultan knew that the one Christian power that could intervene effectively to save the Knights was Venice. But since Venice's last war against the Ottomans of 1499-1503, the Serenissima had worked hard to maintain peace with the sublime port. The Venetians were acutely sensitive that their eastern trade required good relations with the Ottomans. After the fall of Belgrade, the Venetian government sent congratulations to Suleiman on his achievement. In return, Suleiman renewed the peace treaty of 1502 between the Ottomans and Venice. On June 26, 1522, an Ottoman armada of 300 galleys arrived at Rhodes and landed an army. Grandmaster Villiers de Lille-Adam had sent frantic pleas for help to the leading princes of Christendom. They had all gone unanswered. Nevertheless, Rhodes proved to be a very tough nut to crack. Since Mehmed II's invasion of 1480, the knights had hired Venetian architects to renovate their fortresses, turning them into state-of-the-art fortifications. The knights of St. John then defended these fortresses with fanatical courage. The siege proceeded slowly and at huge cost to the Ottomans. On December the 1st, to the surprise of the knights, Suleiman offered them terms of surrender. Moreover, these terms were generous. The knights would be allowed to leave Rhodes with all their chattel and arms except for artillery. The people of Rhodes would be allowed to remain Christian and they would not be subjected to the Dev Shirme, the child levy for the sultan's slaves. When Suleiman met Villiers de lille Adam, the sultan treated the Grand Master with great chivalry, consoling him with the words, it was a common thing to lose cities and kingdoms through the instability of human fortune. Then, turning to his vizier, Suleiman murmured, it saddens me to be compelled to cast this brave old man out of his home. 
On New Year's Day, 1523, the surviving Knights of St. John, 180 in all, boarded four ships. With them they took the records of their order and their most holy relics, the right arm of John the Baptist in a jeweled casket and an ancient icon of the Virgin Mary. Once all were aboard, the ships sailed out of the harbour of Rhodes and plodded a course westward. Sultan Suleiman would live to regret his chivalry, for standing at the rail of one of the departing ships was a young French knight, Jean de Valette. Forty-two years later, de Valette would hand the Sultan his greatest defeat. Having conquered Belgrade and Rhodes, Suleiman could at last turn his full attention to Hungary. A revolt by the recently conquered Mamluks of Egypt delayed him for three years. At last, in the spring of 1526, Suleiman set out from Constantinople with his army. On August 29th, the Ottomans crushed the Hungarians at the Battle of Mohac. Fleeing from the battlefield, King Louis II of Hungary fell into a creek and was dragged down by his armor. The victory at Mohac opened the way for the Ottoman conquest of Hungary. In the following years, the Ottomans would occupy all central Hungary, installing a Baylor Bayi in the former Hungarian capital of Buda, and reduce the Magyar Principality of Transylvania to a vassal state. The only remnant of the once mighty Kingdom of Hungary that remained in Christian hands was mountainous Upper Hungary, modern-day Slovakia. Mohac and its aftermath also brought Suleiman into full-blown conflict with the only Christian ruler who could match the Ottomans in terms of territorial expanse, wealth, and manpower, Charles V, head of the House of Habsburg, King of Spain, and Holy Roman Emperor. After the death of King Louis II, Charles's younger brother, Ferdinand, became the new King of Hungary. The two Habsburg rulers would now become the frontline defenders of Christendom against the fearsome, seemingly unstoppable Turks. As King of Spain, Charles was already engaged with the Ottomans on another front, North Africa and the Western Mediterranean. Cardinal Jiménez de Cisneros's personal crusade had created a new Spanish frontier on the Barbary coast, consisting of a perimeter of fortified ports and islands. This frontier was at first of secondary concern to the Spanish rulers, who were focused on the great contest with France for domination of Italy. The North African outposts decayed dangerously from lack of funds and reinforcements. Spain's forgotten frontier would then come under serious threat with the arrival on the Barbary coast of two brothers from the east, Oruch and Hizir. They were among four sons of a former Ottoman Janissary and his Christian concubine. Born and raised on the island of Lesbos in the eastern Aegean, the four brothers had first taken to the sea as traders. During one of their voyages, they had run afoul of the Knights of St. John. One brother had been killed and Oruch captured. For two years, Oruch was a slave oarsman on one of the Knights' galleys. Oruch eventually gained his liberty. He claimed he filed off his fetters and escaped. More likely, he was ransomed by his family. Oruch and his surviving brothers now abandoned peaceful trading and turned themselves into sea gazis, corsairs who raided Christian shipping and coastlines for holy war and profit. They thrived in their new profession, soon winning the attention and support of powerful Ottoman patrons. They became supporters and clients of the Ottoman prince Korkut, then disaster struck. Korkut lost the succession contest for the Ottoman throne to his half-brother, the future Sultan Selim the Grim. 
fearing for their safety, Oruch and Hizir fled westward to the Barbary coast. When Oruch and Hizir arrived in Barbary around 1512, they immediately saw great opportunities. They first made contact with the Grenadan exiles, who formed distinct communities in the ports of North Africa. Burning with hatred for the Christians of Spain, the Grenadans offered the brothers manpower and invaluable intelligence about the coasts of Iberia. In addition, the Barbary coast was fragmented into innumerable petty city-states and emirates. Oruch thought to exploit this fragmentation and set himself up as an independent prince. The brothers and their band of followers first set themselves up on the island of Jerba, hard up against the shore of modern Tunisia. The brothers reinforced their followers with Grenadan refugees and set off to wage Gaza against the shipping and coasts of Spain and Italy. In short order, Oruch gained a reputation as a matchless corsair. Among the Muslims of Spain, he became a Robin Hood-like figure who punished the Christians with his raids and rescued his oppressed brethren, carrying them off from the Iberian shores to liberty and Barbary. Among Christian Spaniards and Italians, he was a pirate of stupendous skill and unimaginable cruelty. In the words of the Spanish chronicler Lopez de Gomara, it was the start of all the evils that our Spain received at the hands of the corsairs the moment that Oruch Barbarossa began to sail our seas, robbing and pillaging our land. Oruch's nickname, Barbarossa, meant redbeard and came from his most distinctive feature. Christians applied it to both him and his brother Hezir. For all their success as sea gazis and corsairs, the Barbarossa brothers soon realized they needed more strength and resources if they were to establish themselves as princes in Barbary. In 1515, Oruch dispatched one of his most loyal and capable underlings, Biri Reis, to Constantinople to beseech Sultan Selim the Grim's assistance. Setting aside any lingering suspicions he might have had for the Barbarossa brothers' former support for his half-brother Korkut, Selim spotted in Piri Reis's appeal an opportunity to meddle in Spain's backyard. He sent rich gifts to the Barbarossas, honorific titles, bejeweled swords, richly ornamented robes, and more usefully, two war galleys packed with Ottoman troops. Oruch used these reinforcements to mount a coup against the great city and port of Algiers. He strangled the city's emir with his own hands. Afterward, Oruch made himself master of the entire coast of modern-day Algeria. He also placed the Spanish North African outposts under steady pressure, twice unsuccessfully besieging Bougie and surrounding Oran and the Peñon de Velez. Finally, in 1518, he seized Tlemcen, the old inland capital of the central Maghrib. In the process, he slaughtered 70 members of Tlemcen's ruling family. For Charles V, newly crowned King of Spain, the events since the fall of Algiers were extremely troubling. They demonstrated that three Muslim threats had now come together, the Muslims of Spain, the Barbary Corsairs, and the Ottomans. He decided to mount an immediate response. 10,000 Spanish troops crossed to North Africa and marched on Tlemcen. After a siege of 20 days, the Spanish broke into the city. The wily Oruch fled into the Algerian desert. However, he was spotted and pursued by Spanish troops. To throw off his pursuers, Oruch scattered the treasures of Tlemcen in the sand behind him. A determined group of Spanish soldiers would not give up the chase and finally cornered Oruch. 
the Corsair chieftain fought to the death. As he expired, he savagely bit the arm of one of his Spanish assailants. Garcia Fernandez de la Plaza would bear the scar as a mark of honor for the rest of his days. The fall of Tlemcen and the death of Oruch was a decisive event in the incipient Mediterranean conflict between Imperial Spain and the Ottoman Empire, but it was not decisive in the way Charles V hoped. Hizir had not been in Tlemcen when it fell. After his brother's death, he assumed Oruch's mantle, going so far as dye his own beard red with henna. More significantly, for the second time, an appeal for help and protection went from the Barbary coast to the Ottoman court. Sultan Selim the Grim was just then putting the finishing touches on his conquest of Mamluk, Egypt. In Hizir's call for help, he saw another priceless opportunity. This time, to extend Ottoman power from Egypt right across the coast of North Africa. His response was therefore generous. He appointed Hizir as the Baylor Bayi of the new Ottoman province of Algiers, dispatching the customary badges of office, a horse, a sword, and a horsetail banner. Along with these ceremonial gifts came more practical ones, money, cannon, and 2,000 janissaries. Following Selim's death shortly afterward, Suleiman conferred a new name on Hizir, Hayretin, or Goodness of the Faith. Hayretin Barbarossa, as the former Hizir was now called, and as he would be known by history, soon proved himself to be an even greater Sigazi and Corsair than Oruch. After 1520, he marauded across the western Mediterranean, harried the coasts of Christian Europe, and attacked Spain's North African outposts. Moreover, by placing himself under the authority of the sublime port, he had transformed the conflict in North Africa. No longer was Spain waging a frontier war against bands of Muslim corsairs. Instead, North Africa had been drawn into the imperial war between Spain and the Ottomans. After 1526, that war raged along a front arcing from Central Europe to the Pillars of Hercules. In the autumn of 1529, Suleiman and the Ottoman army surged out of Hungary and besieged Vienna, the capital of the Habsburgs. Only terrible weather and overextended Ottoman supply lines saved the city. Afterward, three key events would shift the war's focus to a naval struggle for domination of the Mediterranean. The first event involved the Knights of St. John. Since losing Rhodes, the Knights had been on the lookout for a new base for their maritime holy war against the infidels. In them, Charles V saw a chance to strengthen Spain's Mediterranean defenses against the Ottomans. In 1530, he sent a letter to Grand Master Philippe de Villiers de Lille-Adam, announcing that he was bestowing on the Knights in order that they may perform in peace the duties of their religion for the benefit of the Christian community and employ their forces and arms against the perfidious enemies of holy faith, the islands of Malta, Gozo, and Camino, in return for the yearly presentation on All Saints' Day of a falcon to Charles, Viceroy of Sicily. Malta itself was a small, largely barren island populated by Christian natives who spoke a dialect of Arabic but its strategic value was inestimable. Malta sat squarely on the route that the Barbary Corsairs had to take to the coasts of Italy. Even more importantly, the island was like a cork, stopping the bottleneck of the narrow straits between Sicily and North Africa. Through those straits, the Ottoman fleet had to pass to reach the western Mediterranean. 
With his Mediterranean perimeter more secure, Charles next decided to strike directly at Suleiman. In 1532, he instructed his new captain general of the sea, the Genoese naval condottiero Andrea Doria, to attack Ottoman Greece. Doria immediately demonstrated that he was an excellent investment for Charles. With brutal efficiency, he despoiled the coasts of Greece, then he stormed the key stronghold of Koron on the western coast of the Moria. Doria crowned his brilliant campaign by routing a fleet of 60 Ottoman galleys sent from Constantinople to retake Koron. Andrea Doria's success then provoked the final event that would lead to a full-blown Mediterranean naval war between Spain and the Ottomans. The debacle at Koron alarmed Sultan Suleiman and convinced him that he needed to improve his navy. He summoned to Constantinople the greatest Muslim naval warrior of the age, Hayratin Barbarossa. In the summer of 1533, the legendary Corsair commander sailed into the Golden Horn with 14 galleys. Sultan Suleiman appointed Barbarossa the Capudani Deria, the High Admiral of the Ottoman Navy. In addition, Barbarossa was made the Baylor Bayi of a new province, the Archipelago, which consisted of Gallipoli, Rhodes, Lesbos, Negropont, and the islands of the Aegean. The Sanjak Bays of the Archipelago were required to build their own galleys and man them with their Timariots. The ships of these sea commanders, the Deria Bayi, reinforced the main imperial squadron based in Constantinople. The creation of the province of the archipelago demonstrated how seriously Suleiman now regarded the struggle for the Mediterranean. Hayratin Barbarossa was 67 years old, but his talents and energy were undiminished. He immediately threw himself into the task of rebuilding the Ottoman navy. With the Sultan's unstinting support, the Capudani Deria made use of all the vast material and manpower resources of the Ottoman realms. On May 23, 1534, he led a new fleet out of the Golden Horn. Charles V's ambassador in Constantinople, Cornelius de Schepper, watched it go and immediately sent an ominous report to Andrea Doria. There were 70 galleys, including three flagships with great lanterns. Each galley had bronze cannon, firing stone shot, and 100 to 120 fighting men aboard, many of whom, de Schepper wrote, were in his expedition without pay because of his fame and the expectation of plunder. Hydratin Barbarossa's fleet was not just the final escalation to full-blown naval war. It also represented a crucial transformation in the nature of Ottoman sea power. From its earliest days, the Ottoman navy had been closely linked to the Ghazi Corsairs. Under Barbarossa, the two were merged. The Ottoman Imperial Fleet became, effectively, a giant corsair force. It captured Christian shipping, despoiled Christian coasts, and above all took enormous numbers of Christian slaves. But Barbarossa's marauding also achieved Suleiman's strategic goals. The piratical forays of the Ottoman fleets, weakened enemy defenses, humiliated the Sultan's great rival Charles V, and terrorized the King of Spain's subjects. Hayratin Barbarossa wasted no time. In the summer of 1534, his fleet crashed down on Italy like a tidal wave. Aware that the shores of the Adriatic had been reinforced, Barbarossa led his galleys around the heel of Italy and up the western coastline. The Ottomans savaged the coastal settlements, enslaving whole communities. From their base at Messina in Sicily, 
Andrea Doria's galleys could only watch Barbarossa go by, not daring to challenge his armada. Near Naples, Barbarossa landed and led a raiding party 20 kilometers inland. His objective was Fondi, home to Countess Giulia Gonzaga, a legendary beauty. Barbarossa wanted her as a present for Suleiman's harem. She escaped. In retaliation, Barbarossa burned Fondi to the ground, massacred the town's men, and enslaved its women and children. Barbarossa's campaign of 1534 was just the first of many piratical forays. As the Spanish historian Fray Sandoval later wrote, from the Strait of Messina to that of Gibraltar, no one in any part of Europe could eat in peace or go to sleep with any feeling of security. But Barbarossa had a greater strategic goal than just piracy in mind. He had come up with a bold plan for dislodging the Spanish from the Mediterranean and helping the Muslims of Spain. He noted that the western Mediterranean was too far from the Ottoman fleet's bases. He suggested that Suleiman install in Tunis a friendly Muslim ruler. If the harbor of Goleta were taken and protected by the Sultan, Barbarossa advised, the imperial fleet could be stationed in it most of the time. In that case, with the help of God the Sublime, it would be feasible to conquer and subdue Spain from there. Tunis was just 20 hours sailing time to the coast of Italy. In August, Barbarossa's fleet arrived and landed his janissaries. They deposed Tunis's unpopular Muslim ruler, Moulay Hassan, and installed Suleiman's puppet in his place. Charles V and Andrea Doria had been keeping a close eye on Barbarossa. Even more than the ravaging of Italy, the taking of Tunis alarmed them. They could see its potential in Ottoman hands just as clearly as the Capudani Deria. Charles immediately swung into action. Over the winter of 1534-1535, he demonstrated that he was a talented, energetic impresario of war as he gathered resources from all over his vast empire for an amphibious expedition against Tunis. In June 1535, 74 galleys, 300 sailing ships, and 30,000 men arrived off Tunis. The galleys represented the squadrons of Doria, Spain, Naples, and Sicily. It was now Barbarossa's turn to decide he was overmatched and so declined a sea battle. Instead, he tried to withstand a siege from behind Tunis's walls. Charles V was leading his forces in person. On July 21st, he ordered a final assault. The Spanish fleet's galleys advanced in waves, pounding Tunis's walls with their bow guns. Then the Spanish, Italian, and German troops stormed into the city. Hydatin Barbarossa managed to escape overland to Algiers, leaving his galleys to be burned in Tunis's harbor. The victorious Christian forces then carried out a horrific sack. They plundered and desecrated Tunis's mosques, massacred many of its citizens, and sold 10,000 more into slavery. The savagery of the troops was fueled by vengeance for the great raid on Italy as well as Barbarossa's 20 years of depredations against the Christian coasts. In the aftermath of the slaughter, Charles V restored Moulay Hassan and installed a strong garrison of Spanish troops in the fortress of La Goleta, which controlled the entrance to Tunis's harbor. The taking of Tunis was Charles V's greatest victory in the Mediterranean. When he returned from Barbary, he made triumphal entries into Palermo, Messina, Naples, Rome, and Florence. His propagandists extolled him as destroyer of the Turks and the tamer of Africa. 
yet his triumph would prove to be ephemeral. One day in October 1534, a flotilla of galleys flying Spanish flags slipped into the port of Maon on the island of Menorca. The townspeople came out to greet them, and a Portuguese caravel lying at anchor fired off a gun as a friendly salute. The galleys answered with salvos of cannon fire. The Spanish flags came down, replaced by the green and white standards of Barbarossa. The corsairs stormed ashore, sacked Maon, and carried off 1,800 people. After escaping the sack of Tunis, Hyratin Barbarossa had gone to Algiers and assembled a new force of galleys. After Maon and other raids on the Italian coast, he proceeded to Constantinople. There, Suleiman forgave him the loss of his ships, confirmed him as Capudani Deria, and ordered the building of a new fleet. Suleiman had other plans as well. Italy had remained a contested prize between France and Spain. King Francis I of France was planning another invasion. Suleiman decided to make common cause with Francis against their common enemy Charles V. Over the winter of 1535-1536, a French-Ottoman alliance was forged. The Allies hatched an ambitious scheme to attack Italy together. The Ottoman prong would consist of an amphibious landing in the south. The schemes of Francis and Suleiman drew in the Venetians. To attack southern Italy, the Ottoman fleet required a base at the mouth of the Adriatic. For this purpose, the Venetian island of Corfu would be ideal. Suleiman dispatched a pointed request to the Venetian Senate to join the alliance. The Venetians were now caught between the proverbial rock and hard place. For over 50 years, they had managed to maintain peaceful relations with the Ottomans, and they had every desire to preserve this hard-won situation. Yet, they could also not tolerate Ottoman power dominating both sides of the Adriatic. The Venetians declared their neutrality, politely turned down Suleiman's request, and armed a hundred galleys. Suleiman interpreted the Venetian actions as a declaration of war. Although the combined invasion of Italy quickly fizzled out because the French were unable to penetrate northern Italy, Suleiman nevertheless had Hyratin Barbarossa attack Corfu in August 1537. Although the attack failed, this action nevertheless threw the Venetians into the arms of Charles. Over the winter of 1537, Pope Paul III brokered a holy league, uniting the King of Spain, Venice, and the Papacy. Charles saw the League as a vehicle to drive the Ottomans from the Mediterranean and possibly even attack Constantinople itself. The Venetians sought a quick victory over Barbarossa's fleet, followed by a return to peaceful trading relations with the sublime port. Therefore, from the very beginning, the Holy League's members were at cross-purposes. In 1538, Suleiman decided to make the Venetian overseas empire, the Stato Damar, his main target. Hyratin Barbarossa and the Ottoman Imperial Fleet carried out a spectacular campaign in the Aegean. One by one, the Venetian island bases were either taken by the Ottomans or surrendered to them. Then Barbarossa sailed into the Adriatic, where Ottoman intelligence had informed him the Holy League fleet was gathering. That fleet had been assembling with excruciating slowness. The galleys of the Venetians and the papacy were at Corfu by June. They were only joined there by Andrea Doria and the squadrons of the King of Spain in September. 
One reason for the tardiness of the Spanish was likely the orders of Charles V, whose overriding concern was for the western Mediterranean. He waited until the Ottoman fleet was committed to the Adriatic before he dispatched Doria. The other reason was Doria's own suspicions of the Venetians, which were born out of the traditional rivalry of Genoa and Venice. These divisions hardly boded well as the Holy League fleet finally set out from Corfu to challenge Barbarossa. The Holy League found the Ottomans in the Gulf of Preveza, today in the northwestern corner of Greece. The Christians badly outnumbered the Ottomans. There were 55 Venetian, 27 Papal, and 49 Spanish galleys, along with many round ships carrying troops against 90 Ottoman galleys and 50 galleots. But Barbarossa had cleverly positioned his galleys inside the Gulf of Preveza. The Gulf's narrow entrance was covered by the guns of the fortress of Preveza and Ottoman shore batteries. Even with their considerable margin of force, the Holy League's admirals refused to run this gauntlet. Instead, they decided to beach their ships outside Preveza and try to wait out Barbarossa. The Ottoman fleet was anchored safely in the sheltered waters of the Gulf, enjoyed the support of the Ottoman army, and had plentiful supplies. After three weeks, with their ships exposed to the elements and provisions running low, the League admirals decided to withdraw. Early in the morning of September 27th, the Holy League ships slipped their anchors and attempted to get away unseen. Their withdrawal went well at first. A strong northerly wind pushed them south around the western shore of the island of Santa Mora. But then the wind died, leaving the Holy League fleet hopelessly strung out. Doria's galleys were furthest from Preveza, but the slower round ships were behind and becalmed. Barbarossa now struck. He sailed out of Preveza and formed his galleys into a loose crescent formation. Seeing the vulnerable round ships in front of him, he instantly attacked. His galleys engulfed the Christian fleet in the kind of naval melee in which the Ottomans excelled. With his own galleys out of formation and too far away, Andrea Doria was helpless to intervene. Only a final fortunate shift in the wind allowed the surviving Holy League ships to escape. Preveza was a heavy defeat for the Christians. Seven Venetian and Papal galleys were captured. Numerous round ships, packed with Spanish infantry, were either sunk or taken by Barbarossa. The only bright spot for the Holy League was the resistance of the Great Galleon of Venice. Although surrounded by Ottoman galleys, the galleon had used its formidable battery of artillery to blast its way clear. The worst result of Preveza was that it tore open the divisions in the Holy League. The Venetians accused Andrea Doria of abandoning them to save his own galleys, which were after all his private property. The Venetian fleet went home. In 1540, the Serenissima, deciding that continuing the war was futile, opted for a humiliating peace with the Sublime Port, agreeing to cede to the Ottomans all the Aegean islands taken by Barbarossa. The Venetians would have been even more incensed if they had learned that Andrea Doria had held secret negotiations with Hayretin Barbarossa. The Genoese condottiero had attempted to bribe the Corsair admiral to leave the Sultan's service. Doria undoubtedly and correctly believed that like him, Barbarossa was ultimately a mercenary, looking out for his own best interests. But Barbarossa realized that loyalty to Suleiman was paying him great dividends. 
he strung Doriel along to sow greater doubt and confusion in the ranks of the Holy League. Venice's separate peace with the Ottomans was a heavy blow to Charles, but he did not give up the fight for the Mediterranean. He decided to try to repeat his great victory at Tunis by mounting another large-scale amphibious expedition against an even more important target, Algiers, the stronghold of Barbarossa in Barbary. But his treasury was now almost empty, for Charles was not just fighting the Ottomans, his duel with King Francis of France continued, and in Germany, a monk named Martin Luther had begun a movement of religious reform that was splintering Christendom. As the champion of Catholicism, Charles had committed himself to battling Protestantism and preserving Christian unity. As a cost-saving measure, Charles decided to gamble and attack Algiers late in the Mediterranean sailing season in October. This way, he did not have to mobilize as many galleys because the Ottomans would not be able to send a fleet from Constantinople. The gamble failed. Barbarossa's lieutenant in Algiers, an Italian renegade named Hassan, conducted a determined defense, repelling all assaults. Charles had no choice but to retreat. As his army was re-embarking, a storm struck, wrecking his entire fleet. The king emperor got away on Doria's galleys. He left behind on the North African shore 140 sailing ships, 15 galleys, 8,000 men, and 300 Spanish nobles. The slave market of Algiers was so glutted that it was said Christians sold at an onion a head. After Algiers, Charles wrote to his brother Ferdinand, We must thank God for all and hope that after this disaster he will grant us of his great goodness some great good fortune but there would be no great good fortune for Spain in the Mediterranean. The Ottomans were clearly winning the naval war. In 1543, Hiratin Barbarossa led a vast Ottoman fleet of 120 galleys on another devastating campaign along the coast of Italy. The winter then witnessed one of the most infamous episodes of the Mediterranean wars. At the invitation of the French King Francis, Barbarossa wintered his fleet in Toulon. 30,000 Ottoman soldiers and sailors occupied the town. Its cathedral was converted into a mosque. Then, in the summer of 1544, Barbarossa led his fleet back to Constantinople. Along the way, he once again devastated Italy, taking an estimated 6,000 captives. This campaign was Barbarossa's last. He died soon after returning to Constantinople and was buried in a mausoleum overlooking the Bosporus. It still stands today in Istanbul's Besiktas district. For years afterward, Ottoman ships sailing past the tomb would fire off a gun in tribute to the greatest Capudani Deria of all. The great campaigns of the Ottoman fleet were only one part of the violence that flooded the Mediterranean in the 1540s and 1550s. There was also the constant raiding of the Little War. From their bases along the Barbary coast, Muslim corsairs set out to harry Christian shipping and coastal communities. They snatched thousands of people and took them off to be sold in the teeming slave markets of North Africa. After Barbarossa's death, leadership of the Barbary corsairs passed to Turgut Reis, whom Christians called Dragut. A native of Anatolia, Turgut had served in North Africa under Barbarossa, then fought with distinction at Preveza. He would prove to be a worthy successor to his mentor. In 1551, he captured Tripoli from the Knights of St. John. 
Turgut followed up his feat by raiding Gozo, Malta's neighboring island, and carrying off its entire population. He would relentlessly ravage the Christian coasts of the Mediterranean into the 1560s. Yet the violence in the Mediterranean did not all go one way. After 1541, the Ottoman fleet was dominant. Preveza had demonstrated that only a united Christian armada combining the Venetian navy with the galley squadrons of imperial Spain could face it on equal terms. Yet Andrea Doria, other Italian condottieri in Spanish service, and Spanish admirals all struck back against the Muslims as best they could. Innumerable small actions between small flotillas and single galleys were fought. Spanish and Italian forces regularly struck at corsair lairs and bases. The Christians had their own slave-taking corsairs. From Malta, the Knights of St. John raided the eastern Mediterranean up to the shores of Anatolia with their small but powerful galley fleet. They were joined by new groups of sea crusaders. The most prominent were the Knights of St. Stephen, a military order founded by the Medici Dukes of Florence in 1561. From their base at Livorno, the knights made piratical forays into Ottoman and Muslim waters. Thus, in the evocative words of the historian Roger Crowley, by the mid-century, the Mediterranean was a sea of disappearances, a place where people working the coastal margins simply vanished. The lone fisherman setting out in his boat, a shepherd with his flock on the seashore, Laborers harvesting corn or tending vines, sometimes several miles inland. Sailors working a small tramp ship round the islands. In 1555, one of the main protagonists in the Mediterranean War himself disappeared. The King Emperor Charles V was exhausted by his labors. On October the 25th, in Brussels, he abdicated. One of his last official acts was to divide his immense realm. His brother Ferdinand received Austria, Hungary, and Bohemia, as well as the title of Holy Roman Emperor. His son Philip became King of Spain, with its empire in America, the Netherlands, Italy, and North Africa. King Philip II of Spain was a very different ruler than his father. To govern his many realms, Charles V had been one of history's great travelers. At his abdication, he tallied up his journeys. Nine expeditions to Germany, six to Spain, seven to Italy, four to France, ten to the Netherlands, two to England, and as many to Africa. He had also made eleven voyages by sea. He had spent one out of every four days of his 38-year reign traveling, and had often commanded his armies and fleets in person. Philip II was a royal bureaucrat, who preferred to rule his global empire from the desk in his study. He read all reports from his officials and officers, then carefully weighed his options and finally issued a decision laying out a course of action. This deliberate style of government earned Philip II the sobriquet, the prudent king. Some of his own subjects less kindly interpreted their monarch's prudence as indecision and endless delay. If we have to wait for death, one of his officials quipped, let us hope it comes from Spain, for then it would never arrive. During his eventful 42 years on the throne of imperial Spain, Philip would face many crises. The first was the Ottoman threat to the Mediterranean. By the time Philip ascended to the Spanish throne, in 1556, Corsair and Ottoman galleys infested the western Mediterranean. They regularly raided the coasts of Iberia itself. 
Barbary ships were even venturing out beyond the Pillars of Hercules and into the Atlantic to harass the convoys of the Carrera de Indias, the vital galleon trade linking Spain and America. Clearly, something needed to be done. In 1559, Philip was handed an opportunity. France and Spain ended their latest war with the Peace of Cateau-Cambrésis. Unbeknownst to the Spanish king at the time, Cateau-Cambrésis spelt the end of the long series of conflicts that had begun in Italy. Shortly afterward, France would collapse into religious civil war and for 50 years would be unable to challenge Spanish power. Philip was now free to turn his full attention to the Mediterranean. Philip and his advisors hatched a plan to retake Tripoli. They reasoned that together, Tripoli and Malta could form a defensive barrier that would block the Ottoman fleet from entering the western Mediterranean. The prudent king's preparations were thorough. More importantly, he was determined to avoid his father's mistake at Algiers of attacking too late in the year. His expedition of 54 galleys and 64 round ships set off in February, but it had one key weakness. Andrea Doria was now 93 years old and finally unable to go to sea. His command, his private galleys, and his contract with Spain all went to his nephew and heir, Gian Andrea Doria. Unfortunately, the younger Doria proved unequal to the elder in his skills as an admiral. The arrival of the Spanish forces off North Africa took the Corsairs and the Ottomans by surprise, but Doria threw away this advantage by moving too slowly. Only on March the 7th did the Spanish begin an attack on the island of Jerba, a key stepping stone to Tripoli. By contrast to Doria's dilatoriness, the Ottomans reacted swiftly and decisively. As soon as word of the Spanish expedition reached Constantinople, the Ottoman fleet set out. The Capudan Ideria, or High Admiral, was Piali Pasha. Of Hungarian origin, he was a product of the Devshirme child levy and the palace schools. The Venetian Balio dismissed him as a man of low intelligence. Piali proved the Venetian wrong. He acted with great daring and skill. His force of 86 galleys crossed the Mediterranean in record time and arrived unexpectedly off Jerba. The appearance of the Ottoman fleet on the northern horizon caused the Spanish to panic. Gian Andrea Doria failed to order his galleys into combat formation. Instead, as a contemporary Spanish source described, at this point, the fleet of the Christians weighed anchor in the worst disorder which was ever seen and put itself in flight, and thus, of a sudden, breaking itself. The Pasha, seeing such a shameful thing, made sail and began to pursue the Christians' fleet and brought it to ruin without striking a blow. Under normal circumstances, Galleys preparing for battle took down their sails because a mast brought down by a cannon shot could cause terrible havoc on a crowded deck. According to John Gilmartin, Piali's order to hoist sail and go straight in ranks among the great snap decisions in naval history. Powered by both sails and oars, the Ottoman fleet was able to catch and overrun the fleeing Spanish. The squadron of the galleys of Sicily was wiped out. The flagships of the Pope, Monaco, and Terra Nova were all captured. In all, 30 Spanish galleys were lost. Only the squadrons of Doria and Malta escaped relatively intact. Piali crowned his victory by besieging, then massacring the Spanish infantry who had landed on Jerba. Afterward, the Ottomans built a pyramid of their victims' skulls. The pyramid was still visible in the 19th century. 
the disaster of Jerba overshadowed even Preveza. Imperial Spain's standing galley squadrons were completely gutted. In response, Philip ordered a massive galley-building program in all of the ports and arsenals of his empire. He had the wealth to pay for such an ambitious program. From the middle of the 16th century, the mines of Spanish America had begun producing prodigious quantities of silver, which was brought across the Atlantic by the fabled Spanish galleon treasure fleets. The precious metal was quickly converted into new galley hulls. But the most serious loss at Jeroba was not the galleys. It was the men who crewed the ships. Killed, disabled, or captured was a significant proportion of Spain's galley captains and oficiales, specialist officers, sailors, and gunners. They had honed their skills over years of battling the Corsairs and the Ottomans. They could not be easily nor quickly replaced. Without them, the Spanish fleet could hardly consider challenging the enemy to a major sea battle. Jerba brought Ottoman domination of the Mediterranean to its height. With the Venetians sulking in their lagoon and the Spanish crippled at sea, the Ottoman fleet was free to roam at will and strike anywhere. After the Jerba debacle, Philip replaced Gian Andrea Doria as his captain general of the sea with a wise and experienced Spanish officer, Don Garcia de Toledo. In 1564, Don Garcia prepared for Philip and the Spanish Council of Galleys a strategic appreciation of Spain's position in the Mediterranean. The report listed Spain's possessions in order of importance and vulnerability. At the head of the list, the point of maximum danger was Malta. Don Garcia turned out to be a prophet. In Constantinople, plans were then being laid for a massive amphibious operation of Malta. Christian chroniclers and historians would later write that Suleiman was regretting his generosity and chivalry at Rhodes. He now wanted to finish off the Knights of St. John, who were the scourge of the Muslim Mediterranean. One night had proved particularly troublesome. Fry Maturin Lescaux, called Romegas after one of his family's estates, was his order's most redoubtable naval warrior, as well as a legendary mariner who knew every fold and current of the Mediterranean. He also had the proverbial cat's nine lives. In 1555, the five galleys of the knights were riding safely at anchor in their harbor in Malta. On one of them, Romegas lay asleep. Out of nowhere, a water spout capsized the ships. For the twelve hours until he was finally rescued, Romegas survived by clinging to the wreckage and breathing through an air bubble. For the rest of his life, his hands shook so badly that he could not drink from a glass without spilling some of its contents. He was far more fortunate than his galley's Muslim slaves, who were found still chained to their benches, drowned. Romegas was irrepressible. He was soon again raiding all over the Mediterranean. In the summer of 1564, he scored three successes in quick succession. First, while cruising off the west coast of Greece, he captured a huge galleon carrying a valuable cargo owned by the chief eunuch of the Ottoman court. Next, off Anatolia, he scooped up a merchant ship carrying the governor of Cairo and the 107-year-old former nurse of Suleiman's favorite daughter, Mirima. Finally, three days later, he took the governor of Alexandria, who had been en route to Constantinople. Romegas returned to Malta in triumph, his galleys packed with rich booty and 300 captives. The Ottoman court howled with outrage. Mirima tearfully begged her father for revenge. The exploits of Romegas and the pleas of Mirima 
certainly make for memorable stories. Yet, they were not the only nor even the principal motivations for Suleiman to strike Malta. Rather, the Sultan was driven by reasons rooted in the long struggle for Mediterranean supremacy. By taking Malta, the Ottomans would be cleaning out a nest of dangerous vipers. More importantly, they would be acquiring a base from which their fleet could launch ever deeper strikes into the western Mediterranean. The coasts of Sicily, Italy, and Spain would all be exposed. Even Rome itself would be within reach. But Malta would be no easy target. Malta was 1,300 kilometers from Constantinople. It would be the longest-range invasion ever carried out by the Ottoman fleet. Malta itself was sunblasted and barren, so the fleet would have to carry everything needed by the invasion army, from ammunition to bread to prefabricated siege works. Last but not least, Suleiman and his commanders remembered the bitter resistance of the Knights on Rhodes over 40 years before. They therefore expected a very tough campaign. The invasion fleet departed from Constantinople in February. It consisted of 130 galleys, 18 galliots, 8 large merchant galleys, and 11 large sailing ships, carrying 30,000 troops. The fleet was commanded by the Kapudani Derya Piali Pasha, the army by Mustafa Pasha. When the force from Constantinople reached Malta, it was joined by Turgut Reis with 50 galleys and 5,000 Barbary corsairs. The defense of Malta against the might of the Ottoman Empire was led by two men. On the island itself was the Grand Master of the Knights of St. John, Jean de Valette. A survivor of the knight's epic defense of Rhodes, de Valette was 70 years old, but energetic, resourceful, courageous, and determined. He would need all these gifts because the forces he commanded were vastly outnumbered. They amounted to 2,500 professional fighting men, including 500 knights, and perhaps 5,000 Maltese militia. De Valette distributed these men among the knights' fortresses clustered around Malta's Grand Harbour. The other defender of Malta was Don Garcia de Toledo, who was based in Sicily. He had to carry out an excruciatingly difficult operation. Malta could only be saved by the intervention of a relief force, but the Spanish fleet was still too weak to face the Ottoman Armada. Instead, Don Garcia would have to elude the enemy galleys and land an army on Malta. If he moved too soon, the Spanish would face an Ottoman army not yet worn down by a prolonged siege. Too late, and Malta would likely have already fallen. Don Garcia had to time his intervention perfectly. On May 18, 1565, the Ottoman fleet arrived off Malta and landed the invasion army. The four-month-long siege that followed represented the apogee of Mediterranean amphibious warfare. Both sides exploited all their resources to their limits. Both sides also employed every stratagem at their disposal. Destruction of walls by artillery, direct assaults of gates and breaches, amphibious landings in small boats, mining, countermining, arrow storms, sniping with special arquebuses, defensive sorties by infantry and cavalry, armed swimmers to clear underwater obstacles, and other armed swimmers to stop them. The siege was fought with all the merciless, blood-curdling violence of holy war. After the fall of the crucial Fort St. Elmo, the Ottomans crucified the bodies of the slaughtered garrison and floated the crosses across the Grand Harbour to the remaining fortresses of the knights. In response, 
Devalet ordered the knights' Muslim prisoners massacred. Their heads were loaded into cannons and shot into the Ottomans' camp. By September 7th, the Ottoman army was worn out and had suffered heavy casualties, including Turgut Reis, killed during the fighting for St. Elmo. But the knights were at the end of their resistance. They would have been unable to repulse a final assault. That morning, Don Garcia de Toledo eluded the patrolling Ottoman galleys and landed 11,000 Spanish troops on the northern coast of Malta. He had timed his intervention perfectly. Unable to face an onslaught from fresh forces, the Ottomans fled to their ships. The Ottoman fleet then withdrew to Constantinople. Malta was the first Christian victory over the Ottomans in a generation. From Rome to London, bells rang and bonfires burned in celebration. Malta was also Suleiman's greatest defeat in the Mediterranean. Surprisingly, the Sultan reacted calmly and with restraint. Both surviving commanders, Piali and Mustafa, kept their heads. The Janissaries who returned were promoted and rewarded, for Suleiman correctly interpreted Malta as a temporary setback. Ottoman naval power was intact and remained as formidable as ever. In 1566, a fleet commanded by Piali Pasha seized the Genoese-held island of Chios and then raided Italy. Suleiman's next blow against Christendom, though, was not struck by sea. In April 1566, he set out from Constantinople with his army for Hungary. The sultan was 72 years old and unwell. On September the 7th, his army took the minor fortress of Sigetvar. Suleiman did not witness his soldiers' triumph. He had died of natural causes the day before. Suleiman had brought the Ottoman Empire to new heights of power on land and sea. However, his early years were more successful than his later ones. His last campaigns were marked by fewer conquests, less booty, and more expense. In both Hungary and Mesopotamia, the Ottomans were increasingly on the defensive. Only the Mediterranean remained a field of expansion. Suleiman's greatest troubles were over his succession. As he grew older, his court became a vortex of intrigue, much of it conducted by his beloved wife Hurem, whom Westerners called Roxolana. In 1559, one of his two surviving sons, Bayezid, revolted in a preemptive attempt to claim the throne. The revolt failed, and Suleiman had Bayezid strangled. After his death at Sigetbar in 1566, his only remaining son inherited the throne as Sultan Selim II. The new sultan was not cut from the same cloth as his father. He had little interest in statecraft or warfare. Instead, Selim was a skilled archer, an accomplished poet, and a discriminating patron of the arts. Western ambassadors to Constantinople fixated on his love of wine and alleged alcoholism, contemptuously nicknaming him Salem the Sot. But Salem was not without political experience, having served as a provincial governor under Suleiman. More importantly, he surrounded himself with talented ministers to advise him and to govern in his name. Salem had to commit the opening years of his reign to putting down rebellions in Syria, Iraq, and Yemen. By 1570, he and his advisors were ready to turn their attention to the Mediterranean. There, there, attractive prospects beckoned. In 1569, Uluch Ali, 
the Baylor Bayi of Algiers, the protege of Turgut Reis, and his heir as chief commander of the Barbary Corsairs, had led an army overland to Tunis and evicted Moulay Hamid, Spain's puppet ruler. The way was open to send the Ottoman fleet into the western Mediterranean. And there was good reason to go west. In 1568, the Muslims of Spain, the Moriscos, had risen in armed rebellion against their Catholic oppressors. Centered on the rugged mountains of the Alpujarras in Granada, the rebellion had escalated to a full-fledged war involving considerable Spanish troops and ships. Appeals for aid from the Moriscos had reached the Ottoman court. But the more appealing target for the Ottomans turned out to be Venetian-held Cyprus. Many modern historians have concluded, based on Venetian sources, that Salem was convinced to attack Cyprus by his Jewish friend and advisor, Joseph Nazi, Duke of Naxos. Nazi wanted to corner the Aegean wine market. He also pointed out that the Sultan's favorite vintage came from Cyprus's vineyards. Nazi's plan for the conquest of Cyprus and war against Venice was opposed by Selim's grand vizier, Sokulu Mehmet Pasha, the leader of a peace party in the Divan. Gabor Agostan finds these arguments unconvincing. The Divan was united on the great benefits of conquering Cyprus. Located just off the coasts of Anatolia and Syria, Cyprus sat squarely on the sea routes to Egypt. Taking the island would be a major step to securing Ottoman control of the eastern Mediterranean. Populous and large, Cyprus could provide many Timars for the Ottoman government to distribute to its land-hungry soldiers. Finally, conquering Cyprus would establish Salem's military reputation, helping him gain the respect and loyalty of his servants. The Ottoman Divan also identified two further reasons for choosing Cyprus as the target. First, in contrast to Malta, the island was close to the Ottomans' main centers of power. Second, Cyprus was distant and isolated from other Venetian bases. Any relief fleet would have to traverse waters largely under Ottoman control. However, Sokolu Mehmet realized that attacking Cyprus could unite Spain and Venice against the Ottomans. The Grand Vizier therefore made a determined effort to keep them separated. He promised aid to the Spanish Muslim rebels, going so far as to promise sending the Ottoman fleet into the western Mediterranean. This deceit played on Philip II's well-known fears for the security of Spain and Italy. It also raised the prudent king's ultimate nightmare of a juncture of the Ottomans with the Moriscos. With Spain distracted, Sokolu then sent an ambassador to Venice, who delivered an imperious demand for the surrender of Cyprus. The Serenissima refused to even contemplate such an action. Cyprus and Crete were the jewels of the Stato de Mar, Venice's overseas empire. The Venetians chose to fight, but when the Serenissima sent an appeal to Philip asking for Spanish support, the prudent king's response was unenthusiastic. Sokolu's plan was working. The Grand Vizier had not reckoned on the Pope. Pius V was one of the greatest pontiffs of the 16th century. He would be made a saint by the Catholic Church in 1712. Pius was determined to unite Christendom in a crusade against the Turk. He personally appealed to Philip to have Spain join a new holy league. More persuasively, from the prudent king's point of view, the Pope offered a continuation of the Three Graces, lucrative taxes that Philip collected from the Spanish Catholic Church. 
the king of Spain was moved to join the Holy League and send his fleet to join the Venetians. Meanwhile, the Ottoman war machine had swung smoothly into action. Piali Pasha and a fleet of 80 galleys sailed from Constantinople in April 1570. The army marched out 20 days later. It was commanded by Lala Mustafa Pasha, who had been Sultan Selim's tutor. Fleet and army rendezvoused at Finike in southern Anatolia for the crossing to Cyprus. By July 20th, the Ottomans had landed 80,000 troops on the island. The Venetian defense of Cyprus depended on two fortress cities, Nicosia in the island's center and Famagusta on the southeastern coast. The Venetians had lavished both with state-of-the-art fortifications. The Ottomans went for Nicosia first, opening a siege on July 22nd. The Venetians had assembled their fleet at Zara and then moved it to Crete. It was a powerful force of 127 Gallia Sotile, or ordinary galleys, and 11 of a new, heavy-oared warship, the Gallias. The Venetian admiral, Girolamo Zane, was an experienced seaman. The Venetians then waited for the Spanish and Papal fleets to join them. While they waited, disaster struck. Dysentery swept through the Venetian fleet, striking down marines, sailors, and rowers by the thousands. The Spanish and Papal fleets finally reached Crete on August 30th. The Spanish galleys were commanded by Gian Andrea Doria, whom we last saw escaping from the debacle of Gerba. The lateness of his arrival was caused by the suspicions that continued to afflict the Holy League. Philip II suspected that the Venetians would always seek to make a quick peace with the Ottomans. He had the example of their behavior after Preveza, when the Serenissima had abandoned his father. Philip's main concern continued to be keeping the Ottomans out of the western Mediterranean. He cared nothing for Cyprus and would have preferred to redirect the Holy League against a Muslim target in North Africa. If the prudent king could not have his way, he did not wish to risk his galleys in battle against the Ottomans. He had given Doria precise instructions to this end. For their part, the Venetians knew of Philip's true concerns. They also had no love for Doria because of Venice's ancient rivalry with Genoa. On September the 17th, the combined Holy League fleet at last weighed anchor and set course for Cyprus. It was too late. On September the 9th, the 15th Ottoman assault against Nicosia succeeded in breaching the walls. A massacre of the garrison and population followed. On September the 21st, while the Holy League fleet was sheltering on the Anatolian coast, scout ships arrived carrying news of the disaster. The next day, the commanders of the fleet decided to turn back. Bad faith, contradictory objectives, hidden agendas, mutual suspicions, and historic enmities had all combined to produce the fiasco that was the Holy League's abortive naval campaign of 1570. A powerful Christian fleet of 205 galleys had failed to accomplish anything at all. Alone among the Christian leaders, Pope Pius was not discouraged. He redoubled his efforts during the winter of 1570-1571 to forge a truly effective Christian alliance. In May 1571, the papacy, Spain, and Venice finally agreed on a formal treaty for the Holy League. It had something for everyone. The Pope promised major subsidies in addition to the Three Graces to Philip II. The Venetians agreed to participate in a campaign against North Africa. 
but the League's first action was to be the dispatch of a fleet of 200 warships to rescue Cyprus. While the Christians were wrangling and dickering over terms, the Ottomans had hardly been idle. After taking Nicosia, they had surrounded and laid siege to Famagusta. The defense of this fortress city, however, was led by a Venetian patrician of remarkable courage and determination, Mark Antonio Bragadin. He conducted a highly effective defense that inflicted immense casualties on the Ottomans. The Venetian navy was also not idle. The galleys of Crete were commanded by Marco Cherini, an enterprising sea officer. In January 1571, he noticed that the Ottoman fleet had withdrawn to its ports, leaving just a small force to cover Famagusta. Carini assembled 12 galleys and four round ships, packed with supplies and reinforcements. On January the 16th, he set off from Crete and reached Cyprus in just 10 days. He sent the four round ships, speeding for Famagusta first. When the Ottoman galleys gave chase, Carini's galleys, which had been lurking out of sight, attacked. The Venetians sank three galleys with accurate artillery fire and drove the remainder away. The Venetian squadron then safely entered Famagusta's harbor. Carini's brilliant little action showed the Venetian navy at its best. Carini's sortie to Famagusta humiliated the Ottomans. Moreover, the staunch defense of Famagusta brought back unwelcome memories of Malta. But Cyprus was not Malta, because the Holy League's commanders were not Don Garcia de Toledo. Once the sailing season opened, the fleet that should have rescued Famagusta assembled with glacial slowness. Lala Mustafa Pasha was allowed to tighten the siege's grip on the fortress city. Meanwhile, the Ottoman fleet, commanded by a newly appointed Capudani Deria, Muezin Zade Ali Pasha, set off on a campaign against Venetian possessions in the Aegean and the Adriatic. During the summer of 1571, 330 Ottoman galleys and galliots blazed the trail of destruction around Crete, sailed up the west side of Greece, and attacked Venice's fortresses on the coast of Albania. The Holy League was now in danger of repeating the fiasco of 1570. That it did not was due to two developments. The first development was the appointment of an assertive and determined Spanish captain-general of the League's fleet. Philip had initially tried to foist Gian Andrea Doria on his allies. The Pope and the Venetians vehemently refused. The King of Spain then turned to Don Juan of Austria. Don Juan was the illegitimate son of Charles V. Just 22 years old, he yearned to move out from the shadow of his royal half-brother and make for himself a glorious reputation that would win him a crown. He was therefore spoiling for a fight. The second event was the fall of Famagusta and its bloody aftermath. On August 1st, 1576, after a siege of 68 days and with no relief fleet in sight, Marcantonio Bragadin decided to seek terms of surrender from Lala Mustafa. These terms were as generous as those of Rhodes. The surviving Venetians were to be given safe passage to Crete, and the lives and property of the people of Famagusta were to be spared. But when Bragadin personally surrendered to Lala Mustafa, the Ottoman commander became enraged when he learned that the Venetians had executed 50 Muslim pilgrims. Lala Mustafa ordered his troops to massacre the Venetians and all the Christians in Famagusta but Bragadin was spared for a particularly excruciating and gruesome end. 
the Venetian commander was first mutilated by having his nose and ears cut off. Next, he was forced to carry heavy sacks of stones around Pomagusta's walls, then he was tied to a chair and hoisted to the masthead of a galley so that he could be seen and taunted by the Ottoman sailors. Finally, Marc Antonio Bragadin was tied to a pillar and flayed alive. The Holy League fleet had assembled at long last at the port of Messina in Sicily in September. On September 16th, Don Juan hastily composed a dispatch to the retired Don Garcia de Toledo. Although their fleet is superior in size to that of the League, according to the information we have, it isn't better in terms of quality of either ships or men, and trusting in God our Father, whose cause this is, I have decided to go and seek it out. And so I leave tonight, may it please God, on the voyage to Corfu, and from there I will go wherever I learn that their fleet is. I have 208 galleys, 26,000 soldiers, 6 galleasses, and 24 ships. I trust in our Lord that, if we meet the enemy, he will give us victory. After two weeks at sea, the Holy League fleet learned that the Ottoman Armada was at the port of Lepanto in western Greece. At the same time, swift ships from Cyprus arrived with news of Famagusta and the terrible fate of Bragadin. The news electrified the fleet, instantly soothed all divisions, and focused the Venetians on revenge. The momentum for a great sea battle was irresistible. On October 6th, the Holy League fleet bore down on Lepanto and made ready to fight. Today, Lepanto is Nathpaktos in Greece. Located at the midpoint of the Gulf of Patras, Nafpaktos is a cluster of pretty white houses with red tile roofs. A medieval wall encircles it and encloses its small harbor. Dominating the whole town from a densely forested hilltop is a fortress built by the Venetians in the 15th century. On October 6, 1571, the view from that fortress would have shown the harbor, the bright yellow sand beaches nearby, and the brilliant blue waters offshore, filled by the sleek shapes of Ottoman war galleys. Muezzin Zadeh Ali Pasha was holding a council of war. Like his Christian counterpart Don Juan, Ali was newly appointed to office. And like Don Juan, he was something of an outsider with a reputation to make. Most of the sultan's servants were kapekulu, products of the Devshirme child levy. Ali was a Turk and a born Muslim. As his name indicated, his father had been a muezzin, a caller to prayer. The campaign of 1571 had been his first leading the Ottoman fleet. Under his command were naval officers with much greater experience. Many of these officers were now advising Ali to avoid immediate battle with the approaching Christian fleet. The campaign had been long and grueling, they pointed out. The fleet had been at sea for five months. The men were exhausted and their spirits low. Large numbers had deserted. The rowing gangs of many galleys were under strength. Many also had marine contingents short of their full complement of sixty genissaries and timariots. Ali's subordinates pointed out that the fleet's current position was as unassailable as Barbarossa's at Preveza. The Ottoman fleet should draw the infidels to Lepanto and fight from under the cover of the fortress's guns. Perhaps the main champion of this argument was Uluch Ali, commander of the Barbary Corsairs. But Muezzin Zadeh Ali rejected this argument. He reminded the assembled commanders that his orders from Sultan Selim himself were to fight. 
the latest dispatches from Constantinople had been emphatic. If the infidel fleet appears, Uluch Ali and yourself, acting in full accord, must confront the enemy and use all of your courage and intelligence to overcome it. Muezzin Zadeh Ali's reminder ended the debate. The Ottoman captains returned to their ships. In the early hours of October 7th, the Ottoman galleys weighed anchor and shaped their courses westward for the sea. The two fleets encountered each other on the morning of October 7th. Their battlefield was the mouth of the Gulf of Patras. To the north were the shores of the Kurtzolaris, an archipelago of small islands at the entrance to the Gulf, and the coast of mainland Greece. To the south and west lay the open sea. For a long time, accounts of Lepanto, including even those by academic experts, have characterized the battle as a simple brawl, a land battle at sea that saw the two fleets collide with each other. The outcome of the fighting was decided by sheer determination and religious fanaticism. In fact, as John Gilmartin convincingly argues, Lepanto was the tactical culmination of the Mediterranean system of naval warfare. Both sides fought with great calculation, sophistication, and intelligence. Both strove to maximize the strengths of their galleys while minimizing their weaknesses and vulnerabilities. The Ottoman fleet totaled 210 galleys, 64 galleots, and 64 fustas, a small ship with 15 banks of oars. Muezzin Zadeh Ali knew that the Spanish and Italian galleys were superior to his own in raw combat power particularly if they managed to maintain their line-abreast combat formation. His own vessels were more agile, faster, and especially deadly in a chaotic melee. With these characteristics in mind, Ali drew up his plan, made his dispositions, and assigned his subordinates their missions. The right, or northern wing of the Ottoman fleet, consisted of 54 galleys and two galleots, under Mehmet Soluch, Baylor Bayi of Alexandria. His mission was to exploit the shallower draft of his galleys to work as close as possible to the shores of the Kurtzolaris Islands and the Greek coastline. Because the Christian galleys were heavier and drew more water, they would be unable to follow. Soluch's vessels would be able to outflank and attack them from behind. The Ottoman left, or southern wing, comprised no less than 87 galleys and 8 galleots under Uluch Ali. The Corsair commander's brief was to take advantage of the unlimited sea room to the south and west to maneuver the Christian galleys opposite him out of position. He would then be able to unleash most of his squadron on the enemy flanks and rear. Muezzin Zadeh Ali's plan therefore depended on the Ottoman wings swamping the Holy League wings, then attacking the center. But Mehmet Soluch and Uluch Ali would need time to accomplish their missions. The center of the Ottoman fleet would therefore have to hold out and avoid being ground down by the fearsome Spanish and Italian galleys. Muezzin Zadeh Ali took personal command of the Ottoman center of 62 galleys. He backed them up with no less than 32 galleots. These smaller warships were to exploit gaps in the opposing formation to attack enemy galleys from the side or behind. The galleots could also support Ottoman galleys hard-pressed in a boarding fight by tying up to their sterns and feeding in their marines and fighting oarsmen as reinforcements. Finally, behind the center force, Muezzin Zadeh Ali deployed a small reserve of 8 galleys, 22 galleots, and 64 fustas. The role of the reserve was to reinforce the Ottoman center. 
the Holy League fleet had 206 galleys and 6 galleasses. The Venetians contributed by far the largest number of ships, 108 galleys and all the galleasses. The galleys of Spain, the galleys of Naples, and the galleys of Sicily together amounted to 49 galleys. Gian Andrea Doria's personal squadron totaled 11 galleys, and other Italian naval condottieri contributed a further 23. The papal fleet was 12 galleys strong, and finally the Knights of St. John, 3. Don Juan anticipated Muezin Zade Ali's plan and deployed his fleet specifically to counter it. The left or northern wing of the Holy League fleet, which would be against the shallows of the Kurzolaris Islands and the Greek coastline, consisted of 53 galleys under an experienced Venetian commander, Agustin Barbarigo. No less than 40 of these galleys were Venetian vessels, the fastest and most maneuverable craft in the League fleet. Barbarigo's mission was to prevent the Ottoman galleys from working around inshore and behind his wing. The right, or southern wing, on the open sea also had 53 galleys. This wing was led by Gian Andrea Doria. The Genoese admiral's challenging mission was to prevent Uluch Ali from outmaneuvering and outflanking him. Don Juan intended to win the battle by crushing the Ottoman center. He personally commanded the Holy League center, which consisted of 62 galleys. Among them were numerous lantern galleys, the special vessels that served as flagships or crack fighting ships. Don Juan was in the middle of the formation in his flagship, the Real. On one side of the Real was the Capitana, or flagship of Venice, of Sebastian Vernier, the septuagenarian commander-in-chief of the Venetian fleet. On the Real's other side was the Capitana of the Pope's admiral, Mark Antonio Colonna. Although a high-ranking Roman aristocrat and an experienced soldier of unquestionable personal courage, Colonna was utterly ignorant of naval matters. A Spanish cardinal quipped that his sister knew more about ships than the papal admiral. To make up for this deficiency, the Pope had obtained the services of the redoubtable Romegas. The veteran Knight of St. John was on the papal flagship as advisor to Colonna, an appointment that probably saved his life. Don Juan knew that his plan was risky. Despite the best efforts of Barbarigo and Doria, the flanks of the Holy League fleet might not be able to hold. The Christian center might also need additional strength to overwhelm the Ottoman center. To cope with these possibilities, Don Juan held back a substantial reserve of 38 galleys, which he placed under the command of Don Alvaro de Bazan, the most experienced Spanish sea officer. Despite all the tensions that afflicted the Holy League, the Christian allies had nevertheless thoroughly prepared to fight a pitched battle. The Venetians had brought a secret weapon to Lepanto. The six galleasses were originally merchant great galleys that had been mothballed in the arsenal of Venice. The Venetians, however, remembered the successful resistance of their great galleon against Barbarossa's galleys at Preveza, particularly the devastating effect of its artillery. They therefore rebuilt their merchant galleys into oared floating gun platforms. The resulting galleasses bristled with anywhere from 28 to 40 cannons, or at least 4 to 7 times more than the most heavily armed galley. In addition to a heavy battery at the bow, guns were mounted on the broadsides, without interfering with the rowing benches. All these guns could be drawn inboard and reloaded. 
high sides, and strong contingents of marines made the galleys impervious to boarding. These ships' only disadvantage was they were dreadfully slow. They had 27 rowing benches, not much more than an ordinary galley. Moreover, the Venetian Senate had decreed that only free men could serve as rowers on these vessels. The galleasses Chiurme consisted of just 165 rowers, just enough to keep them underway. Don Juan recognized the devastating potential of the galleasses. He therefore assigned two each to the left, center, and right divisions of the Holy League fleet. The galleasses were to take station in front of the divisions so that they could fire upon the onrushing enemy galleys. Frustrated by the galleasses' lack of speed, Don Juan ordered ordinary galleys to tow them into position. Don Juan also realized the importance of his ordinary galleys' artillery. He had sought the advice of Don Garcia de Toledo, who had replied in vivid terms, In my opinion, the best thing is to do what the cavalry say, and to fire the arquebuses so close to the enemy that the blood spurts over you. I've always heard captains, who know what they're talking about, say that the noise of the bow spurs breaking and the report of the artillery should be simultaneous. In other words, the veteran Spanish admiral was advocating firing a galley's guns at point-blank range. To encourage this practice, Don Juan ordered the spurs of all the Holy League galleys shortened. A cut-off spur might have made boarding more challenging, but it allowed the gunners to aim their pieces much lower and to fire at even closer distances. But Don Juan knew that boarding remained the decisive move in galley combat. He had ensured that the Spanish and Italian galleys were absolutely packed with fighting men, most of them veteran Spanish infantry of the Tercios. Don Juan had set a minimum of 150 marines, but many contingents and individual ships had much more. For instance, the galleys of Naples shipped 150 Spanish infantry and 30 Italian gentlemen adventurers, a total of 180 fighting men. Of great concern to Don Juan was the fighting complements of the Venetian galleys. Because of the Serenissima's chronic manpower shortages, the Venetians originally had just 40 scopoli, or marines per galley. At Doria's urging, Sebastian Venier had hired an additional 5,200 Italian mercenaries and accepted a loan of 4,000 Spanish infantry. These reinforcements raised the number of specialized fighting men on the Venetian galleys to a more acceptable 120. In addition, the Venetians could call upon the free rowers of their chiurme. Lepanto's scale was awesome. According to Fernand Brodel's calculations, 80% of all the galleys in the Mediterranean were present in the small area of sea at the mouth of the Gulf of Patras. Aboard the Holy League and Ottoman fleets were 130,000 sailors, rowers, and fighting men. Lepanto was the largest battle on land or sea in Europe in the 16th century. Among these multitudes, a few figures stood out. Aboard the San Giovanni, one of the twelve Tuscan galleys forming the papal fleet, was Aurelio Schetti, a Florentine musician sentenced to the oar for murdering his wife. On October 7th, he had managed to avoid the benches and secure some light duty. The journal he wrote following his release paints a vivid picture of Lepanto. On the Neapolitan galley Marquesa, a 24-year-old Spanish volunteer named Miguel de Cervantes, although desperately ill with malaria, clambered up on deck to take command of his detachment of 12 marines. 
and the Ottoman fleet, commanding one of the swift Algerine galleys, was Karahodja. Once a Dominican monk, he had gone renegade, converted to Islam, and become one of the most feared of all corsairs, nicknamed by his victims the Black Priest. As the morning of October 7th wore on, the two fleets shook out into battle formation, then began closing with each other. They closed slowly at a combined speed of perhaps six knots. Meanwhile, final preparations were being made. Gunners crouched at their guns, arquebusiers lit their slow-burning matches, officers exhorted their men to do their duty. On the dark, cramped, and fetid rowing decks, thousands of rowers strained at their oars, their backs to the approaching enemy ships. Convicts and slaves cringed at the crack of the overseers' whips. On the three galleys of Malta, their banners blazoned with the white crosses of St. John, on fields of red, the brother knights finished donning bright suits of plate armor. On the Ottoman galleys, Janissaries and Timariot archers strung their short, powerful bows and reached for their arrows. An indispensable part of these preparations was the rituals of holy war. Priests dispensed blessings and absolution. Imams summoned the faithful to prayer. On the decks of the Ottoman galleys, men performed their ablutions, then prostrated themselves. From the bridge of the Real, Don Juan gave an order. An immense sky-blue banner, decorated with the image of the crucified Christ, a gift from Pope Pius, was hoisted high. On the other ships of the Holy League fleet, crucifixes were borne aloft. Not to be outdone, Muezzin Zadeh Ali Pasha also shouted an order. On the highest mast of his flagship, the red-hulled Sultana, broke out the great green banner of Islam, precious above all the other emblems of jihad with the name of God intertwined 29,000 times. Its appearance was greeted by shouts of fierce joy from every Ottoman throat. They were answered by a cacophonous chorus from the opposing ships as the men aboard called on their patron saints in every tongue of the Christian Mediterranean. At this moment, Don Juan was struck by an excess of gallantry. Calling for his musicians, he went forward to the Real's Arumbada, its fighting platform over the bow, and danced the Gallard with two Spanish nobles. The supreme act of what the Italians called sprezzatura, the Renaissance gentleman's studied nonchalance, lifted the spirits of all the Christians who saw it. On the Sultana, Muezzin Zade Ali now revealed himself to be both a generous and honorable man. One of his last acts before the fighting began was to address in Spanish the Christian slaves among his oarsmen. Friends, I expect you today to do your duty by me in return for what I have done for you. If I win the battle, I promise you your liberty. If the day is yours, God has given it to you. Shortly before noon, the Ottoman fleet approached the galleasses. Four had managed to reach their positions. A pair each were now 400 meters in front of the Holy League's left and center divisions. The right wing's galleasses, which had the furthest to go, were still behind Doria's galleys. The great ships worried Muezzin Zade Ali. Confused reports from captives had spoken of Venetian gunships. Yet, it was impossible to know for certain what the Christians were doing. The Capudani Deria could only hope the galleasses were a threat the Ottomans could handle. He was wrong. When the first Ottoman galleys closed to 150 meters, the bows of the galleasses disappeared in flashes of fire and gouts of smoke. Thunder rolled over the sea. 
the gunners on the great ships were the best Venice had. They made every shot count. Iron balls smashed into the advancing ships. According to later Venetian reports, the opening salvo sank three Ottoman galleys. Several more were damaged. With admirable presence of mind, Moezenzade Ali ordered the Sultana's rowing master to accelerate to sprint speed. He hoped to pass the galleasses before their gunners could reload. The other Ottoman galleys followed him. The rowers on the galleasses bent to their oars. The galleasses spun 90 degrees and presented their broadsides to the onrushing Ottoman galleys. Another salvo blasted out, this time at close range. More Ottoman galleys were devastated. To make matters worse, as the Ottoman ships tried to evade the galleasses, they got in each other's way. Many galleys fouled each other's oars, some collided. The galleasses continued spinning in place to present fresh broadsides as soon as the gunners had reloaded. From their decks, their marines fired away as the Ottoman galleys passed, sweeping the enemy's decks with versos and arquebuses. Up to a third of the Ottoman fleet might have been damaged, passing just four galleasses. In addition, their closely serried line abreast formation was gone. A confused mass of ships bore down on the Holy League fleet. But the Ottomans were still full of fight. On the Sultana, Zade Ali ordered his helmsman to steer straight for Don Juan's Real. Sheets of flame and clouds of dirty gray smoke veiled the Ottoman galleys as they opened fire. But the Ottoman gunners were aiming high. Most of their stone and iron balls sailed harmlessly over the Holy League ships. Those ships did not respond. The Spanish, Italian, and Venetian galley gunners were heeding Don Juan's orders to fire only at point-blank range. The Ottoman right wing reached the Holy League fleet first. At once, Mehmet Soluch implemented his part of the Capudani Daria's plan. The Ottoman galleys broke formation and dashed for the shore. Aboard the leading ship was a Genoese renegade named Coralie, who possessed a pilot's knowledge of the local waters. The Ottoman galleys began threading their way through the shallows. On his flagship, Agustin Barbarigo was watching for such a maneuver. He gave a prepared signal to the Holy League left wing. As one, the galleys began swinging like a closing door toward the coast. But even Venetian crews and galleys needed time to complete this difficult maneuver. Barbarigo realized he had to stop the Ottoman galleys from reaching open water first. Signaling to the four closest ships to follow, he drove straight for the nearest enemy galleys. His flagship was instantly engulfed by arrows. Barbarigo lifted the visor of his helmet to issue an order. An arrow pierced his left eye. He was taken below to die. Mehmet Soluch grasped that he and his ships had to break through quickly or be trapped. The Ottomans swarmed Barbarigo's flagship and the four other Christian galleys in their way. The decks of these beleaguered vessels became charnel houses as the Venetian marines and armed oarsmen fought desperately against the Janissaries and Timariot surging aboard. But more and more Venetian ships were now joining the fight, slowly turning the tide against the Ottomans. The decisive moment came when Marco Querini led his Cretan galleys into the fray, along with ten Spanish galleys that Alvaro de Bazan had sent from the reserve. The two galleasses, assigned to the Christian left, were able to haul themselves into the fight. These ships were captained by Antonio and Ambrogio Bragadin. 
they now exacted a fearful vengeance for the harrowing death of their kinsmen at Famagusta, pounding one Ottoman galley after another with their guns. Mehmet Solich's galley was sunk. Recognized in the water because of his splendid robes, the Baylor Bay of Alexandria was dragged, already half-dead, aboard the Venetian galley Dio Padre e la Trinita. Shortly after, the Ottomans' morale broke. With their ships trapped in the shallow water, thousands of Ottomans abandoned them and tried to reach the shore. The vengeful Venetians pursued them first in rowboats, then splashed into the surf, cutting them down without mercy. Meanwhile, the two center divisions had collided. The Spanish, Italian, and Venetian galleys fired their bow guns at point-blank range. The iron balls battered the Ottoman galleys, smashing timber, unseating guns, knocking down whole files of marines, and plowing gory furrows in the rowing gangs. Opposing ships then met and grappled. Wazin Zadeh Ali's decision to strengthen his center with numerous galleots now paid dividends. Some galleots found gaps in the Holy League formation and swarmed isolated enemy ships. Others tied up to the sterns of their own galleys and sent over their crews to add weight and numbers to the Ottoman boarding parties. The Ottoman archers filled the air with so many missiles that to some Christian observers their ships seemed to sprout arrows. On deck after deck, swirling melees erupted as Spanish infantry and Italian marines fought it out hand-to-hand with Janissaries and Timariots. Surrounded and supported by a pack of powerful lantern galleys, Muezzin Zadeh Ali's Sultana made directly for Don Juan's Real. The Ottoman flagship's gunners had held their fire. They now unleashed it on the Real. One stone ball smashed straight through the Real's arumbada and plowed into the rowing gang. Another shot went wide, and the third sailed over the gunnels. The Spanish flagship shot back. Able to aim low because of their ship's sawn-off spur, the Real's gunners wrought dreadful execution on the decks of the Sultana. Then the Sultana struck the Real diagonally at the bow. The Ottoman flagship shipped 300 Janissaries. With a shout, the Janissaries sprang aboard the Real. Christian flagship's fighting complement was huge, 400 Sardinian arquebusiers and an equally numerous company of Spanish gentlemen volunteers and their retainers. The Real's troops repelled the Ottoman borders, then counterattacked, boarding the Sultana in turn. Battling furiously, the Sardinians and Spaniards reached the enemy's main mast before Ottoman reinforcements from galleys behind the Sultana stopped and slowly pushed them back. The Battle of the Flagships was exerting a gravitational pull that drew in galleys from both sides. The papal flagship of Marc Antonio Colonna tried to come to the aid of the Real, but was challenged by the powerful lantern galley of Pertev Pasha. Sebastian Venier, too, tried to reach the Real. The Venetian Capitana was immediately surrounded by four Ottoman galleys and had to be rescued by two Venetian galleys, but both Venetian captains were killed. By half-past noon, the majority of the Holy League and Ottoman fleets were engaged in ferocious battle, but the divisions of Gian Andrea Doria and Uluch Ali were still maneuvering. Uluch Ali was following his instructions from the Capudani Deria to outmaneuver and overwhelm his opponent, then attack the Holy League center. He was leading his galleys out toward the open sea to the south and west. Doria was following, not letting the Corsair commander get around him. 
contemporaries, and many modern historians have condemned Doria's actions as once again showing excessive concern for the safety of his own galleys. In fact, Doria was showing great judgment and skill. His maneuvers were keeping Uluch Ali's supersized division from entering the battle and giving Don Juan time to grind down Muezzin Zade Ali's center. The Genoese admiral was given invaluable support by the two Venetian galleasses attached to his division. They were now on station in the front rank of the Christian division and using their artillery to pound the Ottoman galleys from long range. More importantly, their presence discouraged Uluch Ali from attacking and overwhelming Doria's badly outnumbered ships. An hour after noon, the fighting in the center was reaching its height. The greater weight and more numerous fighting complements of the Spanish, Italian, and Venetian galleys were making themselves felt. The balance of the fighting was finally tipped in favor of the Christians when Alvaro de Bazan committed his entire reserve. At the same time, the two galleasses of the center had rowed back into the fight, engaging targets with their artillery. Around the flagships, Christian reinforcements drove away the Ottoman galleys and galleots. The Grifona, one of the papal galleys, engaged two enemy ships, one captained by Karahoja. The renegade Italian corsair led his men from the front until he was shot down by an arquebusier. The Grifona and a Venetian galley then captured both Ottoman galleys. The Sultana was now isolated from any help. The papal flagship had driven off Pertev Pasha's lantern galley, then captured another Ottoman galley. Romegas turned to Colonna and said, That galley is ours. Shall we seek another or help our real? The Pope's admiral chose the real. Romegas seized the tiller himself and steered the papal capitana into the sultana's stern. A few moments later, the Venetian flagship of Sebastian Venier also arrived. Spanish, papal, and Venetian troops now flooded onto the sultana. They overcame the Ottoman troops' suicidal resistance, driving them steadily back down the deck. Surrounded by the last of his janissaries, Muezzin Zade Ali made a last stand at the poop deck from behind a barricade of sequined mattresses. A blast of grape shot from one of the Venetian flagship's swivel guns blew apart the makeshift barrier. Muezzin Zade Ali shot arrows from his bow until a volley of arquebus balls killed him. Then, according to some accounts, a Spanish soldier cut off the Capudani Deria's head and rushed back to the Real to show Don Juan his prize. For his pains, the soldier received a fiery rebuke. Don Juan had hoped to take his enemy alive. To shouts of victory, victory, the great green banner of Islam was replaced by a Christian flag. The battle, though, was not over yet. On the seaward flank, Doria and Uluch Ali were still bloodlessly sparring. Then a group of mainly Venetian captains, suspecting that Doria had abandoned Don Juan, turned their ships and headed toward the fighting at the center. Doria's line suddenly fractured. Uluch Ali saw his chance and seized it immediately. He reversed course with his entire force and sped straight for the breakaway Venetian galleys. The wayward ships were swallowed up by the Ottoman galleys. Each of the isolated Christian galleys was attacked by four or five foes. Uluch Ali's crews were experienced corsairs, lethal in the boarding fight. On five Venetian galleys, no Christians were left alive at all. On a sixth, the captain surrendered with just six of his men still standing. 
the Christ over the world blew itself up, taking the surrounding Corsair ships with it. Having overrun the breakaway ships, Uluch Ali now led 30 of his swiftest galleys at the Holy League center, leaving behind the rest of his division to hold off Doria. The first galleys he encountered were the squadron of the Knights of St. John. Like wolves, corsairs fell upon their hated enemy. The heavily armored but hopelessly outnumbered knights went down fighting. All three of their galleys were taken. On the knight's flagship, a desperate stand was made to save the order's sacred standard but the Muslim galley slaves rebelled and joined the attackers. Only the captain, Fray Pietro Giustiniani, and a handful of defenders were left alive. Uluch Ali took the knight's standard as booty and the knight's flagship under tow as a prize. Seeing the plight of the knights, other Christian galleys tried to intervene. The corsairs turned the tables on the would-be rescuers. The entire fighting complement of the flagship of the Genoese Imperiale family was wiped out, although the ship itself was not taken. The veteran Spanish captain Juan de Cardona just managed to repel the Tamariots who boarded his galley, though they reached the mainmast. Uluch Ali went on, sweeping behind the Holy League center, overrunning some isolated Venetian galleys. If he had arrived just half an hour sooner, he would have swung the battle in the Ottomans' favor. But he was too late. Muezin Zade Ali was dead, and his center division had effectively ceased to exist. Don Juan, Sebastian Venier, Marc Antonio Colonna, and Alvaro de Bazan turned their galleys to meet the corsairs. From the south, Gian Andrea Doria was coming up fast with twelve galleys. The Genoese admiral had ordered his ships to hoist sail so that the wind could aid the rowers. Uluch Ali realized the battle was lost. It was time to go. Uluch Ali's galleys cut loose their prizes. The Corsair commander led 14 ships north and got away. Flight of Uluch Ali ended organized Ottoman resistance, but many isolated galleys fought to the end. When they ran out of shot and arrows, some Ottomans threw oranges and lemons at their enemies. Mopping up took most of the rest of the afternoon. Long before then, the Christian sailors, marines, and oarsmen had begun looting. From the huge number of captured Ottoman galleys, they plundered rich booty in the form of gold and silver coins, luxurious garments and fabrics, sumptuous furnishings, bejeweled ornaments, and weapons of all sorts. From the flagship of the Bay of Rhodes, Venetian looters took four falcons and as many greyhounds. Men even fished the dead out of the water to pillage them, but perhaps the most valuable booty of all were captives. Though the vengeful Venetians killed most of the enemy who fell into their hands, the Spanish and Italians were happy to take prisoners. High-ranking ones could be exchanged for lucrative ransoms, the less exalted sold as slaves. As the sun began to set, the League officers got their men back in order. The Christian galleys took their prizes under tow. Don Juan ordered the ships to move off. They rode slowly through a sea covered with the wreckage of battle and floating corpses. The Florentine Forzati Aurelio Schetti claimed he could tell Christians from Muslims because the Turks always floated face down. Don Juan dispersed the Holy League fleet among numerous anchorages scattered along the Greek coast. This decision proved prudent as a violent thunderstorm came down in the night. The carnage of Lepanto beggars the imagination. The Ottoman fleet had been almost annihilated. The Holy League captured 117 galleys and 13 galleots. 
only 50 Ottoman warships of all types had escaped. The rest had been sunk, beached, or damaged beyond repair. The human losses were equally staggering, because neither the Holy League nor the Ottomans seemed to have kept an accurate count the number of Ottoman dead can never be certainly known. The best estimates put it at 35,000, including almost all the senior officers. The Kapekulu troops, Janissaries, and Sipahis of the port appeared to have been wiped out. In addition to the staggering numbers of dead, the Ottomans also lost 3,785 prisoners, of whom 40 were of exalted rank. Sea bays, famous corsairs, and notables, including the two sons of the Kapudani Deria. Although hardly approaching the Ottoman dead and prisoners, Holy League losses were nevertheless heavy. At least 7,650 killed and 7,800 wounded, of whom many later died. The Venetians had paid the highest price, with 4,836 dead and 4,604 wounded. Spanish losses amounted to 2,000 dead and 2,200 wounded, the Tercio of Sicily alone suffering 600 casualties. The hardest hit of any contingent was the Knights of St. John. Almost all the brethren who fought at Lepanto were killed. Thus, 40,000 men had been killed, the vast majority in about four hours of fighting from the moment when the galleasses opened fire to the flight of Uluch Ali. The rate of killing at Lepanto likely exceeded even that of Kanai. Large numbers had been stabbed, hacked, or bludgeoned to death in the hand-to-hand fighting on the galley decks. Innumerable others drowned, but much of the carnage must be attributed to gunpowder weapons. On men packed shoulder-to-shoulder on the decks, gangways, and rowing benches of the galleys, the effects of cannon shot and massed arquebuses at point-blank range were murderous. Lepanto's rate of slaughter would not be surpassed until Luz in 1916. The Holy League's losses were compensated by the release of 19,000 Christian slaves. Most had been taken by the Ottoman fleet during its summer campaign in the Aegean and Adriatic. Many had been chained to the oars as the Ottoman commanders did their best to compensate for the mass desertions of conscripted rowers from their chiurme. Both sides had fought the battle with great skill and determination. Muezenzade Ali Pasha had gone into battle with a fleet worn down by a long campaign. The fighting complements and chiurme of many Ottoman galleys were under strength, the result of mass desertions among Timariots and conscript rowers. The best decision that the Kapudan Ideria could have made would have been not to fight the Holy League fleet at all. Second best would have been to take the advice of Uluch Ali and his most experienced sea officers and fight from the protection of the fortress of Lepanto. However, Muezin Zade Ali had orders from Sultan Selim and Grand Vizier Sokulu Mehmet to fight. In the Ottoman state, disobeying such an order spelt certain death. With no choice but to fight, Muezin Zade Ali had played his hand as well as he could. His plan to hold at the center and win on the wings made the best use of both the technological characteristics of his galleys and the fighting qualities of his men. By reinforcing his center division with a second line of galleots, as well as a reserve, he ensured that his ships could stoutly resist the fearsome Spanish and Italian galleys. Above all, these measures bought time for his subordinates to win on the wings and come to his assistance. And the Capudani Deria's plan almost succeeded. 
If Ulwich Ali had swept down on the Holy League center just a little sooner, the outcome of Lepanto would likely have been very different. But Don Juan and the Holy League fleet won the battle more than Muezzin Zade Ali Pasha, and the Ottoman navy lost it. Captain General had anticipated what the Ottomans would do and crafted a plan to counter it. He deployed his forces in such a way as to make best use of his galley's capabilities. Four reasons then accounted for the Holy League victory. First, there was the fighting power of the Christian center division, which eventually nullified even Muezzin Zade Ali's measures to counteract it. Second, Don Juan's wing commanders, the slain Augustin Barbarigo and the much maligned Gian Andrea Doria, had managed to prevent the Ottoman wings from carrying out their outflanking missions. Third, Alvaro de Bazan had fought the Holy League Reserve with great coolness, committing some of his galleys to shore up Barbarigo before sending in the rest to tip the balance in the fight at the center. The final reason was the devastating fire of the Venetian galleasses. They had seriously disrupted the Ottoman battle plan well before the fleets came into contact. They had then provided support to all the Christian divisions until the end of the battle. The galleasses' effective use of artillery pointed the way to the future. On the night of October 7th, as the Holy League fleet lay safely at anchor, Don Juan singled out Francesco Duodo, the Venetian commander of the galleasses, for effusive praise, stating unequivocally that the Christians owed their victory to the action of his ships. And on the night of October 7th, Miguel de Cervantes lay on the deck of the Marquesa. He had been badly wounded in the battle. Two arquebus shots had struck his chest and a third his left arm, which he would be unable to use again. Nevertheless, the author of one of the greatest novels in Western literature, Don Quixote, would always remember taking part at Lepanto as one of his proudest moments, and the battle itself as of undying importance. Lepanto, he would sum up, was the greatest event witnessed by ages past, present, and to come. Lepanto was the first great Christian victory against the Ottoman Empire. No one was more euphoric than Pope Pius V. He had been the architect of the Holy League and arguably was the figure most responsible for the victory. Now dreamed of taking the Holy League's crusade to the Middle East. Its aim would be nothing less than the capture of Jerusalem. Before he could attempt to realize this dream, Pius died in May 1572. The next pope, Gregory XIII, embraced the anti-Ottoman crusade. But he did not possess his predecessor's charisma, energy, or force of personality. At its moment of triumph, the Holy League had been deprived of its prime mover. Or perhaps Pius was fortunate to leave the stage in the immediate aftermath of Lepanto, for the Holy League's Achilles' heel of internal division soon reasserted itself. The Venetians tried to ensure maximum benefits from the great victory. On October the 22nd, 1571, the Signoria ordered all the highest-ranking Ottoman prisoners in Venetian custody to be killed. The Venetian leaders realized that the Ottomans would otherwise ransom these experienced captains and sea officers, then employ them to build a new navy. The Republic lobbied the Pope and the Spanish to do the same with their prisoners, but both Pius and Don Juan recoiled in horror. The League's Captain General pointed out that the Venetians were inviting Ottoman reprisals as well as eliminating valuable bargaining chips who also happened to be worth a lot of money. Pius had the prisoners housed in a palace in Rome. 
the clash over the prisoners was just the beginning of the disunity that would soon tear the Holy League apart. For the Venetians, the operations of the Holy League after Lepanto should aim to restore their position in the Aegean and permanently weaken the Ottoman fleet. Moreover, they had paid the highest price in terms of ships and men for the great victory. Their economy was already coming under severe strain as the result of the mobilization of the fleet and the disruption of the eastern trade. They therefore wanted the war to end as quickly as possible. For the Spanish, the next objective of the Holy League should be a major Muslim-held port in North Africa. However, Philip II and his advisors feared that pushing this objective would alienate the Venetians and the Pope. Don Juan recommended first a campaign in the eastern Mediterranean, then an expedition against Algiers. The Spanish therefore agreed to have the League fleet campaign in the east for 1572. While the Holy League allies squabbled over what to do next, the Ottomans were frantically rebuilding their naval power. Ottoman propaganda downplayed the importance of Lepanto, calling the battle the incident of the dispersed fleet, and scapegoated the dead Muezzin Zade Ali Pasha for the defeat. After his escape from Lepanto, Uluch Ali had gathered up all the surviving Ottoman galleys he could find, then remained on guard in the Aegean until the Holy League fleet dispersed. When he returned to Constantinople in December 1571, he brought 83 galleys with him and the captured standard of the Knights of St. John. His actions not only saved his life, they won him a promotion. Salem appointed the corsair commander the new Capudani Deria, High Admiral of the Ottoman fleet. The Sultan also gave Uluch Ali a new name. Henceforth, he would be called Kilic, or Sword Ali. The Ottoman shipyards and arsenals were already hives of activity. To the building of new galleys, Sokolu Mehmet and the other viziers brought to bear the full resources and administrative genius of the Ottoman state. When Kilic Ali expressed concerns about the shortage of materials for anchors and sails, Sokolu Mehmet replied, My dear Pasha, you do not know this state. Trust in God. This is such a state that if desired, there would be no difficulty in making all the anchors in the fleet of silver, the ropes of silk, and the sails of satin. For whatever materials of war or sails are lacking from any ship, ask me. The Grand Vizier was true to his word. By the spring of 1572, Kilich Ali had 200 galleys under his command, including eight galleasses copied from the Venetian originals. But if the Ottomans could build new ships, they found men much harder to replace. According to the leading Ottoman historian Colin Imber, Lepanto provoked a crisis in Ottoman naval manpower. After the battle's massive losses, the Timar holders were reluctant to serve at sea again. The sublime port managed to scrape together 4,396 Timariots and 3,000 Janissaries, a figure far short of the 20,000 troops needed to man Uluch Ali's new fleet. To make up the difference, the Divan turned to volunteers, especially Kurds from the east of the Ottoman realm. Even more serious than the quantity of manpower was its quality. Lepanto had wiped out practically the Ottomans' entire force of experienced sailors and naval combatants. The port tried to address this problem by drafting in corsairs from Barbary. During the winter of 1571, there was a massive movement of North Africans to Constantinople. However, 
there were never enough corsairs to restore the fleet to its former prowess and efficiency. We have seen how the disaster of Jeriba diminished the Spanish fleet as a fighting force for many years. Lepanto had an even greater effect on the Ottoman navy. As soon as the campaigning season of 1572 opened, the papal and Venetian fleets were ready for action. But the Spanish fleet under Don Juan was slow to assemble. King Philip of Spain had changed his mind about the Holy League's objectives. He now wanted to attack North Africa instead of driving into the Aegean and the eastern Mediterranean. The Pope's admiral, Mark Antonio Colonna, and the Venetian admiral, Giacomo Foscarini, eventually lost patience and sailed to challenge the Ottoman fleet off the west coast of Greece. They found Kilic Ali outside the fortress port of Metoni. The Ottoman fleet was larger than the papal Venetian one, but conscious of the inexperience of his crews and the weakness of his fighting contingents, Uluch Ali adopted the stratagem that he had urged on Muezzin Zade Ali on the eve of Lepanto. He kept his fleet in the harbor of Metoni, safely under the guns of the fortress, and dared the Christians to attack. Correctly judging the Ottoman position too strong, Colonna and Foscarini withdrew. The debacle of the 1572 campaign tore the Holy League's divisions wide open. Fed up with the Spanish and straining under the huge expenses of the war, the Venetians decided to cut their losses. They opened negotiations with the Ottomans. In March 1573, the Serenissima and the Sublime Port concluded a peace treaty. It was decidedly unfavorable to the Venetians. They lost Cyprus and had to pay the Ottomans a war indemnity but their status as the Ottomans' favored trading partners was restored, and they could get back to doing business. The Venetians had always been ambivalent participants in wars against the Ottoman Empire. Their preference was to avoid fighting at all. One leading historian of Venice's relations with the Ottomans, Paolo Preto, has calculated that between 1453 and 1797, the Serenissima and the Sublime Port were at war with each other for only 61 years, against 273 on which they were on peaceful terms. Venice only fought when it felt that the Ottomans were threatening its security in the Adriatic and the Aegean. Even then, the Venetians proved willing to see chunks of their Stato de Mar if it meant the restoration of their economic lifeblood, the trade with the Middle East. Philip II and Don Juan were hardly surprised that Venice had once again made a separate peace with the Ottomans. They had been more or less expecting it ever since the formation of the Holy League in 1570. The Spanish still had considerable forces in the Mediterranean, and they now decided to use them to attack Tunis. Moreover, Pope Gregory was furious at Venice's defection and agreed to provide funds for the Spanish expedition. In October, Don Juan led a strong Spanish fleet to the shores of North Africa and took not only Tunis but Bizerte as well. The Spanish monarchy had seemingly achieved its goal of restoring its Mediterranean defensive perimeter. The fall of Tunis provoked an overwhelming Ottoman response. In 1574, the Ottomans made the Mediterranean once again their main theater of war. In a classic Ottoman amphibious invasion, Uluch Ali brought a massive force of 230 galleys carrying 40,000 crack troops to Tunis. In Sicily, Don Juan could only mobilize 60 galleys. The Spanish monarchy was once again learning the lesson that to face the Ottomans at sea, the Christian powers of the Mediterranean had to be united. 
Uluchali duly retook Tunis. The Ottomans would never lose it again. The Ottoman recapture of Tunis wiped out all the gains Christian Europe had made at Lepanto. Far from being crippled, Ottoman naval power appeared to have completely revived. The way seemed clear for further Ottoman offensives in the Mediterranean against the divided and dispirited Christian power. Yet, after 1574, the Mediterranean naval war quickly petered out. The mobilization and dispatch of huge galley fleets imposed great financial, material, and manpower burdens on Imperial Spain and the Ottoman. Furthermore, both superpowers were being drawn away from the Mediterranean. Spanish attention was being pulled far to the north. In the Netherlands, a political and religious uprising had begun in the early 1560s that would escalate into the Dutch Revolt. Philip II needed his veteran tercios in northern Europe. The Ottomans were looking increasingly to the eastern frontiers of their empire. A war against the Shia Safavids of Iran had broken out in 1578. Subsequently, the weakness of the Safavid state appeared to offer new opportunities for expansion. The Ottomans wanted to stand down their expensive galley fleet and turn their forces eastward. Sensing an opportunity to end the Mediterranean War, Philip II secretly sent emissaries to Constantinople. In August 1580, Imperial Spain and the Ottomans concluded a truce. Both sides demobilized their fleets. Equally importantly, they agreed to restrain the piratical forays and activities of their corsairs and other irregular naval forces. The Truce of 1580 represented a true turning point in the history of the Mediterranean. The age of imperial warfare in the Mediterranean came to an end. Both empires now withdrew to concentrate their forces on other fronts. Spain ceased its attacks on the Muslims of North Africa and instead turned its forces against the Protestants of the North. After 1580, the main theater of Spanish naval power shifted from the Mediterranean to the Atlantic. For their part, the Ottomans abandoned the Muslim community of Spain to attack the Muslims of Persia. The Battle of Lepanto had ultimately led to a draw. The battle's main result was to fix the frontiers of the Mediterranean world along a north-south line running through Malta and the Straits of Sicily. The Spanish would now be undisturbed in their control of the western Mediterranean. The Ottomans were confirmed in their domination of the eastern Mediterranean, which was now even more secure with the possession of Cyprus. Imperial Spain and Venice therefore appeared to gain little from their victory at Lepanto. But John Gilmartin makes a convincing case that the Spanish and Venetians would have faced disaster if they had lost it. A crushing defeat would have wiped out Spain's naval experts for the second time. Even worse, the Venetians would never have managed to replace their losses at all, given their already deep manpower crisis. Afterward, a triumphant Ottoman fleet would have enjoyed total naval dominance over the whole Mediterranean. It would have had its pick of targets. It could have seized the Balearic Islands, where, from the superb harbour of Mahon, on Menorca, it would have been able to terrorise the western Mediterranean and lend effective support to the Moriscos. Or the Ottoman fleet might have even made a descent on Venice itself. Lepanto also represented the apogee of the Mediterranean war galley as a fighting ship. After 1580, 
the Spanish and Ottomans demobilized their fleets to save themselves the enormous costs of building and maintaining them, not to mention putting them to sea. But there were already signs that the Mediterranean war galley's role as a frontline warship was coming to an end. The galley was superior to the sailing ship only so long as naval cannons were still made from expensive bronze. A galley armed with a very powerful centerline gun and a few secondary weapons was a superior gun platform to a sailing warship armed with a broadside of just a few medium-caliber cannons. The balance between galley and sailing warship was then completely transformed by English blacksmiths who came up with a method of making cannon from relatively inexpensive cast iron. Invented during the second half of the 16th century, the method spread quickly across northern Europe and then to the Mediterranean. With cannons now more economical, sailing warships could be equipped with scores of heavy guns. By the 17th century, they could fire broadsides that could overwhelm the bow-mounted armament of the galley. The decisive move in naval tactics shifted from boarding to prolonged artillery bombardment. The future of naval warfare belonged to the sailing man-of-war fighting in line ahead, not to the oared galley fighting in line abreast. If the galley was increasingly obsolete as a front-line warship, it remained a highly effective raiding vessel because of its abilities to move irrespective of the wind, to enter shallow waters, and to run up onto shore. It was therefore the perfect vehicle for the little war that continued to rage in the Mediterranean after 1580. For the withdrawal of the empires and their great galley fleets had only left the sea clear for the Christian and Muslim corsairs. They continued to practice their distinctive form of violence, mixing piracy, slave-taking, and holy war. The principal Christian corsairs remained the Knights of St. John. From their fastness of Malta, they continued their maritime holy war against Muslim shipping and coastal communities. However, their depredations often ignored religious scruples. The Venetians often complained that the Maltese were attacking their ships but the champions of the Little War remained the Barbary Corsairs. Although the 1580 truce was supposed to restrict their activities, the province of Algiers was far from Constantinople, and the imperial writ did not run strongly there. The Barbary Corsairs quickly returned to their primary activity of slave-taking. They attacked European ships to capture sailors and passengers. They launched devastating raids against Christian coasts and enslaved the populations of entire villages. The Mediterranean remained for centuries a sea of disappearances. But the Barbary Corsairs' depredations reached far beyond the Mediterranean. Adapting their vessels and nautical skills to the conditions of the Atlantic, they ventured far beyond the Pillars of Hercules. From 1600 to 1800, they regularly attacked shipping on the approaches to Western Europe. Coastal settlements in England, Ireland, and on the Atlantic coast of France were all struck by slave-taking raids. And in 1627, Iceland suffered the so-called Turkish abductions when Barbary corsairs from Algiers and Saleh carried off 400 people. The Europeans captured by the Barbary corsairs were then taken back to North Africa, where they were sold in the slave markets, put to work in fields, mines, and construction sites, or held for ransom. The scale of this trade in European slaves was immense. The historian Robert C. Davis estimates that between 1550 and 1800, one million Europeans were taken as slaves. In the 17th century, 
the Barbary slave trade dwarfed the better-known European-controlled Atlantic trade in African slaves. It was not until the young American Republic fought its first foreign war against the Barbary states at the beginning of the 19th century that the Corsair menace was finally tamed. This concludes Lepanto, Episode 5 of the Great Battles in History podcast. My name is Daryl D., and I would like to thank you for listening. If you have any questions or comments, I would love to hear from you. My email address is greatbattleshistory at gmail.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please rate it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Thank you very much.